When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone this is the other side of midnight i'm frank morano uh we got an action-packed show for you today uh we're gonna cover it all covid long island serial killer aliens um russia ukraine politics if there's time uh veteran suicide theater drugs you name it we got it all covered for you for the next four hours uh but today is april 20th which is the marijuana holiday now, it is interesting. I have a confession to make. I have never smoked marijuana or, or vaped marijuana or done marijuana in any form. The closest I've come to marijuana is being in the room when people have smoked marijuana around me. And I, I have felt at times that I was getting a little bit of a contact high, but I've never ingested marijuana in any form. And it's not because I'm some big moralist. I, look, I'm drunk more often than not. It's uh, just because I don't uh, I don't like the smell of it. I don't like uh, the last thing I need is something that's going to make me more hungry. Uh, so I've never really been a marijuana person. Uh, I have a lot of friends that uh, that uh, have smoked marijuana and they're fine. I know some other people that smoke marijuana and they get a little wacky. So I know it affects different people in different ways. And I know a lot of people can smoke marijuana once, twice, three times, 20 times, and then live perfectly normal and productive lives. And the reason we're talking about this now is not just because it's the marijuana holiday, 420, which came about initially because there was this group of teenagers in California that would ritualistically smoke marijuana every day at 420 at 420. And so then it became 420, the calendar date, then it became uh, April 20th. So the reason we're talking about this now, though, is because tomorrow, April 21st, is the first day, as I understand it, that you will be able to legally purchase marijuana in the state of New Jersey. Now, uh, it's lucky news for both uh, Matt and Molly, that Matt Lee collectively, they live in the state of New Jersey. They're looking forward to purchasing, getting online and purchasing some marijuana. But there is an aspect of this new law that I haven't really heard anybody talk about. So if you're a police officer and you are off duty, nothing wrong with having a drink. And then you, you know, presumably are not under the influence of alcohol as long as you give yourself enough time to sober up by the time that you're on duty. 
if you take a drink on duty, there's something really troublesome about that. But they can always find out if you do if they do a breathalyzer. So here is the aspect of the new marijuana law that I haven't heard many people discuss. So the first legal recreational marijuana sales are coming Thursday. In advance of this, a couple of days ago, Acting Attorney General Matt Platkin issued a memo informing New Jersey law enforcement agencies that the state's marijuana legalization law, the one that the state of New Jersey passed, governor signed, bars them from punishing cops who use legally obtained cannabis while off duty. Follow? So cops in the state of New Jersey, the Garden State, will be able to smoke New Jersey, excuse me, to smoke cannabis legally off duty. But this has created quite a stir with a lot of people raising what I think are valid points that I feel have not been addressed. So the attorney general's memo was not a police directive. He was telling them what the law was, or at least how his office interprets it. And so far, no one said anything different, that he has a flawed interpretation. So several politicians from both parties, Assemblymember Beth Sawyer, Republican, State Senators Joe Cryan and Paul Sarlo, Democrats, they've taken issue with this. Plotkin, the attorney general, noted that cops, of course, can be punished for being under the influence at work. So here is the question which now these legislators have raised, and I haven't heard anybody address, at least not to my satisfaction, How do you know? How do you know if a cop is high on marijuana while on duty? Generally, the effects of cannabis last a couple of hours after smoking it and several hours after ingesting it. But it can stay in your system, as I understand it. Again, I've never done it, so um, you can educate me on this. 800-848-9222. It stays in your system for weeks. There are physical tests for marijuana intoxication, but there are no state standards yet. So there are lots of pitfalls and potential legal liability. So while, look, I I wouldn't be any more alarmed if a police officer smoked a joint while off duty than I would be if they had a few beers. The problem is determining unlike alcohol, when they're intoxicated. And I'm curious if anyone else has thought about this, if anyone else is worried about this. 800-848-9222. So, I mean, if lawmakers have a problem with police using marijuana off-duty, they're going to need to change the law. And uh, State Senator Paul Sarlo, again, a Democrat, He has said as much in a statement last Friday. That would be a revision of the cannabis legalization law that the new Senate president, Nick Scatari, spent the last decade or so pushing before he was unexpectedly 
elevated to the uh, to lead the state Senate after uh, Senator Sweeney went down. And so far, Scatari hasn't answered it. What would you like to see happen? Should police be banned in general from using marijuana? If not, if so, does that create a different standard where police can have a drink when they're off duty but not smoke a legal substance? And B, if they can smoke it, how do you know they're not smoking it on duty? 800-848-WABC if you want to take that uh, take that question any which way you like it. 800-848-9222. Of course, police, law enforcement have a long history with marijuana, but generally it's the Jack Webb version of interacting with marijuana. Granted, uh, you've made your case against speed, LSD, heroin, and those ghastly-looking pills, but I maintain the evidence against marijuana isn't in yet. Well, sir, will you concede that it might be as harmful as alcohol? Well, all right, but it's no worse. No, sir, I hope not. Because according to U.S. government figures, between five and six million people in this country are physically and mentally sick as a result of their use of alcohol. The National Safety Council estimates that on the highways, liquor-caused property damage amounts to over $4 billion annually. As long ago as 1965, a year that incidentally was carefully researched, 29,400 Americans died on the highways in alcohol-related accidents. Now, I think it's safe to assume that figure is even larger today. Now, let me ask you. If marijuana possesses only half the potential of alcohol for violence, criminality, accidents, and social degradation, do we need pot? Uh, And, of course, who could forget the most important aspect of what Jack Webb would have to say on the marijuana front? Marijuana is the flame. Heroin is the fuse. LSD is the bomb. So don't you try to equate liquor with marijuana, mister. Not with me. You may sell that jazz to another pothead, but not to somebody who spends most of their time holding some sick kid's head while he vomits and wretches sitting on a curbstone at 4 o'clock in the morning. And when his knees get enough starch back in him so he can stand up and empty his pockets, you can bet he'll turn out a sticker to a marijuana. Yeah, marijuana is the flame, LSD is the fuse, heroin is the bomb. 800-848-WABC. Well, now the good news is Jack Webb, he off-duty, Joe Friday, he could smoke marijuana in the state of New Jersey. And the reason I realize that a lot of listeners don't live in the state of New Jersey, but this is coming to your state soon. Recreational marijuana will soon be in New York, where we're going to be confronting the same questions, and it's going to be coming to other states. And I'll be honest, there's a number of other logistical uh, concerns that I have about this. Look, the, the genie's out of the bottle. It seems we're moving forward with legalization of recreational marijuana. I wish people could vote on it um, in state after state. I'm a believer in initiative and referendum, but fine. The genie's out of the bottle. This is what society wants. Fine. I'm not going to... I don't take issue with that. I'm not uh, I'm not Joe Friday. But you also are going to have to deal with a whole bunch of police dogs that need to either be retired or retrained, because if they've all been trained, all these police dogs to when they see marijuana react. Usually it's sitting. And I think sometimes they do other things, but usually it's sitting. And if that's now a legal substance, then they can't sit when they when they are tipping off an officer to illegal substance, those dogs are going to have to be retrained or retired, which is a tremendous investment of time, resources, energy, money. And those dogs have performed admirably. They didn't do anything wrong. And this is to say nothing of the issue of marijuana while driving, because 
as I understand it, I still don't think there's an adequate test for marijuana while driving. So how do you know if somebody is is doped up while driving? And what does that mean for things like accidents, things like insurance? And how do you know if someone's doped up while on their way to work? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. And I'm talking about cops specifically. Robert is in Philadelphia. Hello, Robert. Hey, hey, it's good to talk to you, Frank. Um, two things. I, I think that they should be able to smoke um, when they're off duty. In fact, when I look at all the occupations in the world and being a smoker myself, I think they could probably use a J at the end of the day more than anybody with all the stuff they see. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you also asked a question about being able to tell when they're high. Uh, the difference between a drunk cop and – or I won't say cop because I support the police. I mean, the difference between a drunk driver and a stone driver is a drunk driver will blow through the stop sign. A stone driver will sit at it and wait for it. Right. I've always heard that, Robert. But the reality is, I I mean, and I appreciate that you smoke marijuana. I know a lot of people do. But Mm -hmm. we don't want cops that are high, right? Um, We don't want cops that are high on the job no more than we want a cop who's drunk on the job, you know? Right, right. Um, And so the the, – I think the alcohol tends to bring out – this is a generalization, but I think alcohol brings out the worst in people. I think marijuana tends out to bring bring out the better side of people. Fair, fair. But I I think, look, a police officer is not going to be doing an optimal job, whether he's chasing a bad guy, whether he's pulling people over, whether he's writing tickets, whatever whatever a cop is doing, whether he's investigating a kidnapping, he's not going to be doing an optimal job. If he's high, right? So given the guidance from the attorney general and his interpretation of the law, which so far nobody has challenged, what do we do? How do you know if a cop is smoking marijuana while on the job? And if he smokes three hours before being on the job or takes an edible three hours before being on the job, technically that's allowed. But doesn't it affect his performance? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Robert calling from Philadelphia, the land of indoor masks. We're going to talk with uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya coming up in about 15 minutes about where we are with COVID. COVID numbers are rising around the world, including in China. And a lot of people are concerned about bringing back some of these COVID lockdown restrictions in America. And so we're going to Dr. Bhattacharya has been a pretty consistent opponent of these stringent lockdown measures. So we'll get into it with him. 800-848-9222-BJ's in Queens. Hello. Hey, uh, Frank. Uh, well, congratulations to everyone. We've now reached uh, third world status where not only citizenry get to smoke marijuana and walk about the streets and blow it out of their apartment onto the carriages of uh, uh, babies that are being pushed by mothers and uh, all of the homeless people. But now the cops get to walk around with a doobie outside their mouth as if, you know, looking at their phone wasn't a much of a distraction. I think it's great. Maybe next we can have the cops work remotely. And uh, that way they can just simply, you know... Uh, uh, you know, dial, we could, uh, if you see a crime, it'll be like uh, dialing uh, 
Uber or, uh, you know, Uber, Uber Eats or, uh, you know, DoorDash or something. You'll be able to have a cop come and pick up whatever's left of uh, whomever's uh, killing each other uh, on the street. BJ, believe me, I appreciate the, the sarcasm and the humor and the truth behind the sarcasm there. I don't think my understanding of how this is going to work logistically has been furthered at all by that humor or sarcasm. And look, maybe there's no answer. I mean, it sounds like there's not. It sounds like these law enforcement agencies are going to be just as clueless with how to deal with this come tomorrow as I am. But understand where we are. 23 hours from now, you will be able to legally purchase marijuana marijuana in the state of New Jersey. And if you're off duty as a cop, you can smoke it. Two questions. One, how are they going to know if you're smoking it on duty? Two, if you smoke it before you go on duty or ingest it before you go on duty, won't that still make you, one, in compliance with the law, and two, high while you're supposed to be policing? Now, I I would hope, and most of the police officers that I know, this certainly applies to, but I would hope most cops wouldn't want to be high while they're on duty. But look, I'm sure there are some that do. Maybe they have a very, very, uh, what they think is a low crime area. Maybe they're on routine patrol. Maybe they're having trouble sleeping and they figure this, taking a quick edible, will help them grab a 45-minute or an hour nap while there's no crime going on. I don't think cops should be doing it while they're on duty. How do you stop it, though, under the current circumstances? And I'm thinking maybe this is one of the things that happens when you rush into something. Maybe we should pump the brakes a little bit. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. All right. Uh, Anna is in Washington Heights. Hello, Anna. Hi, I think this is a huge can of worms. It hasn't been thought through. I don't know what the the answer is, but a cannabis high can last anywhere from two to ten hours. And if you test for it, the test goes back to thirty days. So there's really no test to know. So there's nothing anybody can do unless no, they change I don't, the law. I don't see that there is. I, well, so that I think maybe it's time. Maybe they should just prohibit police officers from from smoking marijuana even while they're off duty. Well, they'd have to put a time limit on it. I think that's what uh, airlines do, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Yeah, you couldn't smoke, I think, it was 12 hours. But the thing is with alcohol, I'm sorry, drinking, the thing is with alcohols, you can test for it. But right. with marijuana, you can't. That's that's you can't exactly, see, you exactly can't see what I'm saying. When they smoked. I yeah. Mean, luckily, it only makes you giggly and sexy and hungry. It doesn't make you more aggressive, do, usually. Do you indulge in marijuana occasionally? Oh, sure. And you find it does those things, makes you uh, sexy and giggly and hungry? And hungry, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, very, very interesting, Anna. That's a, I like Anna's voice. She's got a whole hipped-out Bob Marley-style vibe to her. But remember. Marijuana is the flame. Heroin is the fuse. LSD is the bomb. So don't you try to equate liquor with marijuana, mister. Not with me. You may sell that jazz to another pothead, but not to somebody who spends most of their time holding some sick kid's head while he vomits and wretches sitting on a curbstone at 4 o'clock in the morning. And when his knees get enough starch back in him so he can stand up and empty his pockets, you can bet he'll turn out a stick or two of marijuana. 
Uh, I know. I only need that clip to make me giggly and uh, and hungry and sexy. I'll tell you, uh, that might be the funniest clip in all of television. At least until Bookman gave Jerry the uh, lecture on uh, what libraries mean to him. Until that moment, that is the funniest moment in all of television. Artie and Nutley, hello. Hey Frank, it's a thrill to speak to you. Likewise, thanks. No, I just want to say, you know, I have a friend who, first of all, he's an underwater uh, welder, and he smokes weed. I'm sorry to use the word weed, but, I mean, he smokes marijuana all day. Yeah, well, you could use the word weed. It's very common. That's okay. Oh, okay. I mean, I wasn't sure, but, I mean, you know, my point is is some people can do their jobs while smoking, and some people can't. You know, but my other thing is is my friend is uh, he's a a veteran, and he's also a a penitentiary. He works in a penitentiary, state penitentiary, one that we all know. I'm not going to say where, but it's close to us, and it's in shambles. I'm sure you know where I'm talking about. But he deals with a lot of things. You know, he comes home, he's depressed sometimes, and he's got anxiety. He also has things that he went through in the military. And the state, you know, provides him with three different medications. And he told me once in a, a, this past summer in a barbecue in his yard, I, I, I indulge, I smoke. And I was smoking, and he said, man, I wish I could just take a hit of that. And he says, I don't even need any of this stuff. And he told me what he was taking, you know, these different medications. He's like, if they just let me smoke, I'd be fine. I wouldn't even take any of this crap that they're giving me, but I can't smoke. Mm. If he smokes, he turns up positive and he gets fired. Interesting. Interesting. Well, look, I mean, I think that I think you've made the case better than most as to why why recreational marijuana and or medicinal marijuana should be a legal option for a lot of people. Because you're right. There's a lot of people that turn to uh, things like opioids as a, as a painkiller when uh, they haven't been able to use marijuana. And there's people that turn to um, sleep aids like Ambien as a, a, you know, and that becomes habit forming and potentially much more dangerous than marijuana. That being said, uh, y- your friend, the underwater welder, or your uh, friend who works in the penitentiary, notwithstanding. True story there. No, I believe you. I believe you. I still don't think it's for the best the best idea for cops to uh, to come to work high. And look, I'm starting to think maybe we need a prohibition on police officers smoking marijuana, as Anna said, maybe within 30 days of of being on the job, right? Uh, because. Otherwise, how do you police it? Unless someone can show me a better test. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya coming up in a few minutes. But uh, let me say hello to Anne in Brighton. Anne, where is Brighton? Brighton Beach is Oh, Brighton Beach. Sure, I know Brighton Beach. Sure, of course. Yes. Yes. I just want to ask a question. I know smoking is bad for your health. And you have to quit, right? So is marijuana good or bad for your health? Well, look, I am not. I'll ask that to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya in just a minute. He's much more qualified to answer that than me. But I think anytime you're inhaling burning smoke into your lungs, that's not a great thing for your your lungs, your throat and your your mouth. That being said, I know a lot of people that are very health conscious. Uh, people like Bill Maher come to uh, come to mind that do things like vape marijuana. That's supposedly a healthier alternative. But I think because it's been an illegal substance everywhere until the last few years, there's not necessarily a lot of research into the 
potential health uh, harms of marijuana. I know different people have said different things, but I'll ask that to Dr. Bhattacharya since he's coming on anyway. 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. You know, it's a matter of the legislature doing something to earn a buck for the state. I don't think they really care about people. I, see, I don't care if a cop smokes, but the only difference is a cop carries a gun, and that's the problem. He shouldn't be carrying a weapon if he's been smoking marijuana. The same way an airline pilot who is really regulated, they can't work more than eight hours without getting right, arrested. Right. Could you imagine a, an airline pilot that having a couple of joints uh, and then uh, going in the cockpit? Well, no, I wouldn't it's want ridiculous. that either, obviously. No, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's a hazard to public safety. And, and until people address up like this, this should be the first thing that's being addressed. That's oh, yeah. Thing oh, yeah. Oh, agreed. Uh, that's, uh, that's what I'm saying. I feel like this was rushed without a lot of thought put into it. And I'm glad. And I haven't heard any attention paid to this anywhere in the press. Uh, print media, radio, television. I haven't heard anyone talking about this so far. And uh, I'm glad these legislators have brought this up uh, because I think that's an important thing to bring up. 800-848-WABC. Quick break. We'll continue with Dr. Bay- Jay Bhattacharya. Those of you that are on hold, if you want to continue to hold, we'll get to you. Or if you don't want to continue to hold, I won't begrudge you that. You call back later if you want, whatever you want. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Frank Marano, 77 WABC. live in the state of New Jersey, you will be able to purchase legal marijuana tomorrow. And uh, I'm sure some of you are getting an early start on that today, if you're awake right now. Uh, We're joined by a man who knows a great deal about medicine and a great deal about economics and a great deal about probably everything. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University, a research associate with the National Bureau of Economics Research, and a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. It's exhausting just reading this guy's resume. Uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya, it is always a treat to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Frank. Uh, So, Dr. Bhattacharya, I want to talk to you primarily about COVID and what some places are doing to bring back uh, certain restrictions. But while I have you on the phone, uh, do you have any thoughts? A a caller just called in a few minutes ago asking about the the health hazards of recreational marijuana smoking. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or is there any consensus about what the medical community has said on that front? 
I mean, I think there's still some some controversy. I mean, that there's uh, it's largely, but uh, you know, there there are folks who respond uh, respond in in ways that are not not uh, uh, you know not 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 healthy. Generally, sometimes um, I'd also say that uh, it it depends on the dose and it depends on on how frequently you use it. So it's it's not. Uh, I mean, it, with, as with anything. Uh, it's uh, it's going to depend on the individual. It's also going to depend on uh, on sort of if you take it in moderation or not. Well, I guess that could be said of uh, of alcohol or so much. All right, uh, we're seeing a lot of headlines all about the COVID surge, about the uh, COVID uptake uh, uptick not only in the United States but around the world. Based on what you're seeing, is it time for people to start worrying yet? How bad is this COVID surge getting around the world? I mean, I think uh, this surge is less, uh, you know, peaks at a lower level than the Omicron surge. The Omicron surge, the key thing to, is not so much the, the virus itself. The key thing is that the population it's meeting has a lot more immunity than the population than, for instance, the original um, Wuhan variant met. Uh, a very large fraction of the population have had COVID and recovered. And so uh, they're, they're relatively protected against severe disease if they get infected. Same thing with the vaccine. The vaccine also protects against severe disease. It doesn't stop you from getting the, the virus, but it does stop you from having uh, prevention from having very high, high, um, a, a, a really bad, you know, result leading to hospitalizations or death. Um, and that's why hospitalizations are actually pretty low now compared to where it's been through most of the pandemic. So I'm, I'm not so much focused on the surge itself. I'm more focused on the fact that the population is, is relatively immune compared to what it once was. So unless we see those numbers of hospitalizations or God forbid deaths start to tick up, Nobody should be worried yet. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're, well, I mean, if you have certain chronic conditions or if you're older or especially if you're not vaccinated and never had the disease before, you know, you should take, you should get the vaccine, um, get it maybe. The other thing is there are also better treatments available. There's uh, treatments like the, the Paclovid, uh, which have been approved. Of the, and and uh, so if you're, especially if you're in a vulnerable, um, uh, you know, condition, you, you definitely should have on hand those doses of those drugs so that uh, if, if you do get sick, you can take it you know, early in the disease. So I'm not saying do nothing. Uh, I'm, what I'm saying is don't, don't worry. Just take actions based on what we know, which is, you know, if you have, if you're, if you're, uh, uh, if you're, already uh, if you're unvaccinated and you're and you're older please get vaccinated if uh, uh, get get doses of pack a little bit around um for the rest of the population don't worry so much live your life uh, china is apparently instituting the worst lockdown in shanghai since the very beginning of this pandemic two years ago they have this policy in china of covid zero and it's apparently leading to very draconian measures in China, two questions on this front. One is: um, is the variant, as best you know, is the variant that that China is dealing with now a new variant? And do we have any reason to believe that it is more or less dangerous than what we've been through already with the Grade A Wuhan variant, Omicron, or anything else? I think it's the, it's the Omicron variant. It might be some of the BA two variant that, that uh, that's going around also, but. I think it's the Omicron variant. Uh, the key thing there, though, is that their COVID zero policy, which they followed through the whole pandemic, 
now is revealed to be a utter failure. They have now, uh, I mean, hundreds of millions of people in lockdown states with human, basically, what you call it a human rights violation. They're separating parents from kids. They have killed childhood uh, uh, household pets like cats and dogs. Um, they, you know, sort of locked people in the house. There's in Shanghai. There are reports of people essentially unable to get food for a month. Um, I mean, it's a catastrophic failure of, of a policy, um, and it won't achieve its goal. It, the, the disease spreads regardless of policies like this because it's a very highly infectious disease, and you have no choice that uh, eventually you have to come out. Um, so I think uh, the idea of COVID-0, and there's also anim- you know, animal vectors of this. So the idea of COVID-0, I think, uh, unfortunately, the Chinese policy shows us it was a folly to, be, to even think we could, it was possible to do that. But the, the best we can really do is, is live with the virus. Um, but you, with the tools we have, we can live with the virus without so much harm as we had early in the pandemic. So already this this COVID zero policy and the accompanying lockdowns in Shanghai have had a devastating impact on China's economy. And except for the price of gas in America, maybe ticking down a little bit because Chinese motorists aren't driving to work. This has the potential to have a, a pretty devastating effect, uh, uh, impact on the American economy as well, not only because of the stock market and uh, and things of that nature, but because the American economy is so interconnected with China. My question is for you, Dr. Bhattacharya, is irrespective of what people might think of the, the leadership of China, and I've certainly been very critical they know how to add. They see what this is doing to their economy, and they see that the original lockdown policy was ineffective at, uh, at, at stopping the spread of COVID. Why would they do this? What is the possible rationale? I mean, I, I don't know for, for certain, but what I'm looking, what I've seen is that the Chinese leadership took a lot of pride in their success with COVID while the rest of the world suffered, mm. their parents' success with COVID. And they trapped themselves in their own rhetoric. And so unless they COVID to zero using these draconian policies, which I mean, unfortunately to say will ultimately fail, uh, regardless of the catastrophe they're causing, they'd rather have that. They'd, they'd, they'd likely view it as a threat to their own own success as a government unless they get COVID to zero with these policies. Mm. They put, they, they, they've essentially fooled the rest of the world into adopting these policies, and now they're trapped by their own, own you know, apparent success. Philadelphia is bringing back, or, or they have brought back, apparently, indoor masks. Uh, in your view, right move, wrong move, what do you think? I, I don't understand it, actually. The, the efficacy of mask mandates is nearly zero. Uh, the places that have had mask mandates have effectively the same uh, pattern of COVID cases as the rest of the, the, the world that doesn't have mask mandates. Um, so I, there's no good evidence, there's no randomized evidence that suggests that masks are highly efficacious compared to, say, the vaccine, for instance. So it, it seems like it's essentially uh, bringing back a failed policy that didn't work and created an enormous amount of social division. It just seems short-sighted. Um, and, uh, you know, I've heard the Philadelphia mayor, I think, try to argue for it, saying things like, well, it's, there's a lot of minorities. But why do minorities, um, the fact that there's a lot of minorities, mean that there should be uh, an effective policy? I mean, you shouldn't harm, you'd be harming the minor, minority populations by telling them that these mass mandates work when they don't. 
So I don't think it's I don't think it's worthwhile to bring it back. Again, we have a much more immunized population. We have a population that has the vaccines. We have a population that has had COVID and recovered, and thus is protected against severe disease. What's the purpose of the mask mandate? Yeah, I can't figure it out, which makes what we're hearing in New York even more troubling. Uh, apparently, New York City is moving to what's called a yellow alert level, which means there's a medium risk of community spread. The mayor, our mayor here in New York, said on Monday that he's considering bringing back the mask mandate in public schools as well as reinstating the key to New York City mandate, which requires vaccinations for certain places. Uh, I'll assume you don't think that's wise. And uh, if the mayor's listening to us right now, which he might be, he's a bit of a night owl. What would you say to him as he's considering these measures? I'd say to the mayor, focus on things that, that actually can work. Don't focus on low yield items that don't actually protect populations. I think uh, segregating populations based on the vaccine status doesn't work because the vaccinated and the unvaccinated both spread the disease. Don't focus on mask mandates don't work. Instead, focus on upgrading ventilation in public spaces, uh, protecting vulnerable people, and making sure that the, that the vaccines are available to the people who haven't yet been vaccinated, especially the vulnerable people who haven't been vaccinated yet. Um, this focus, for instance, in New York on toddlers, I mean, for a, for a little while, I think New York City was the only place on earth requiring two to four year olds to mask. I, I, unfortunately, I believe we still are. Uh, I've lost track of what the current rules are, but I think we still are. Unbelievable. Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, it is completely ineffective. And for some uh, toddlers, it's probably harmful to the development. You know, if you're hearing impaired, it's, I've heard reports from lots of uh, parents uh, that, that their children have trouble with language development and other things because they're looking at the faces that are masked. And for autistic kids, for instance. Uh, so I don't really understand this focus on such a low yield uh intervention when, in fact, high-yield interventions are available. Make sure that everyone who's vulnerable in New York City has Paxlovid available so that if they get sick, they, they can have early treatment. I mean, that would be much more effective than these than these treatments, than these interventions that don't do very much. Um, in fact, they might even harm people because they make people think they're safe when they're not. They've uh, struck down the rule requiring face masks on airplanes. Apparently, some people are upset about that. And uh, there's even talk of uh, an appeal by the CDC. How effective was that mask mandate on public transportation like uh, Amtrak and on airplanes? I mean, I think there's vanishingly few people that have been identified to get had gotten sick on an airplane, especially modern airplanes. And the reason is simple. The airplanes have fantastic air filtration. And the air filtration is the key to reducing the, the disease. The disease, what it does is it sits in the air in little aerosols that uh, that stay for a long time. And so if you have a place like an airplane where the air is, is circulated very frequently, it just doesn't have enough time to stay in there and infect other people. The masks don't accomplish anything of any value, really, other than to divide people and, and to make people miserable. Um, so I don't really, under, again, don't understand why people are upset about the removal of an ineffective measure. Uh, in fact, I don't even actually don't think most regular people are upset. I, you know, I don't know if you saw these videos, Frank, of people cheering when it was announced that the mask mandate was lifted. I did, and Taking yeah. the masks off. I mean, I think for the most part, regular people understand these are just 
uh, these, these these are these are like interventions that are very ineffective and uh, and and are happy to see them go. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, that's certainly how I feel. But uh, then, you know, I went to a Broadway play on Saturday, and you had to have a vaccine card and a mask just to see the play. And uh, it really makes you feel like you're living in two worlds because then you go out and step right outside the door. Everyone whips their mask off and is talking with one another like they're normal people. And then just in the confines of that theater, everyone's masked up and has to show identification and vaccine proof. It's just it, it all looks to me like a, a great deal of, of theater now. Um, we're talking with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University, a research associate with the National Bureau of Economics Research. It, the, back in late December, early January, it seemed like everybody that I know got the Omicron variant, had seen, even if they were vaccinated. Most people didn't have um, much of a serious reaction to it. If folks got sick uh, in late December or early January with a, a positive test or a mild case of COVID back then, how likely are they to be protected by the current surge that we're seeing right now? Quite likely to be protected. There's a lot of cross-protection between the BA2 variant and the, and the Omicron variant that was circulating back then. Um, the Omicron variants are not that far apart from each other, such that they that the BA2 evades the immunity provided by natural by, by uh, uh, COVID recovery. Now, if you've had the Delta, like I did actually in, in August of last year, um, then I'm, you know, I'm, I might get it again. But the key thing is to remember is that even if I do get it again, it's very likely that it's going to be mild compared to what if I, if I was just immune naive. The protection that we get from immunity uh, that we get from COVID recovery is actually quite good. Um, and I don't really understand why public health hasn't emphasized this fact because uh, that I think sets a lot of, would set a lot of people's minds at, at, at relative ease. Uh, I mean, I, I, you have to be careful because there are people who, especially much older people, maybe people over the age of 70 or 80, um, who, uh, who have a lot of chronic conditions that might get some, um, you know, sort of suffer from more severe disease if they were yet. That's why I don't say that we don't do nothing. We, we just make available good treatments, um, make sure everyone's vaccinated, um, especially in those age groups. And that actually is enough. Children in particular don't face very high risk from the disease if they, are, if they get infected, even unvaccinated children. Um, so I don't, it, the, there's the thousand fold difference in the risk of severe disease from the oldest to the youngest. So I think, um, that's, I, I mean, my, my general uh, idea around this is let's take seriously population immunity. Let's take seriously what the, how, how severe the threat is. It's just a much less of a threat than it was two years ago. And uh, in ter- you alluded to people that are at-risk populations, the importance of them getting vaccinated. I, I certainly agree, and I got vaccinated and boosted. Who do you think should be getting the booster? Are you an advocate that everybody that's eligible for getting the booster should get uh, should get boosted? Or are you somebody that thinks only uh, those at risk populations, the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions, those folks should be the ones getting the booster? I mean, I think it's 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 
like any medical thing, it should be something that depends on the patient, right? So, for instance, if you've got two vaccine doses and then also a COVID recovered, you have pretty complete protection. Mm-hmm. The booster doesn't provide a ton of protection above and beyond for, for people like that. Now, there could be exceptions. So, for instance, again, older people might need to get boosted even though they've got, got uh, COVID already. Um, so I think it really it depends on your particular clinical condition. And it's something you should talk with your doctor. I'm very uncomfortable with public health making sure. blanket medical advice when they don't really know the the, the, the situation of, every, of, of the patient. I think instead they should be telling people, go seek good advice from your doctor about whether it's appropriate. Um, for for the, the biggest bonus, the biggest like, benefit, it co- comes to people who've never had the disease before and have not been vaccinated. Yeah, I knew there was a reason I haven't seen you in these commercials telling people that you've never met exactly what sort of treatment they should be pursuing. <laughs> Um, one thing that a lot of folks have uh, raised raised concern about is something called long COVID. Can you can you explain briefly what long COVID is, how that's affecting people, and who tends to be at risk for that? So I think it's it's a couple of different kinds of conditions. So if you had a very severe bout of COVID, you had landed in the ICU for a long time, you know, anyone that lands in the ICU with a big respiratory condition will take a long time to recover. So there's that group of people, but that's actually a relatively small fraction of the people that the people like to think, talk about. The other idea for long COVID is people who months, one, two, three months after they recover from COVID still have some lingering symptoms, you know, generally often nonspecific ones like fatigue, um, mild headaches, things like that. Um, you can think of the analogy with like mono. I don't know if you ever had mono, think, but like, you know, it's, the, 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 the symptoms of mono can last months and they're, they're often like those kinds of fatigue-like symptoms. Um, so it's not like any, no, no other virus that can do this. Um, there have been a number of studies that look at long COVID in both adults and kids. And the key thing is the best studies have a control group. They identify a set of people who never got COVID and then followed them for some months alongside people who got COVID and followed them. There's actually very little difference in the rates of long COVID symptoms for the control patients and the patients who actually got COVID. A lot of the, the symptoms then in that second group, not the patients who got in the ICU, but the second group, those patients... Um, I think, uh, you know, during a lockdown, you are, are going to be, fit. I mean, you know, there's high rates of depression and anxiety during the lockdown. You're going to see people who are anxious, even if they never got COVID, who have some of these symptoms. And so I'm not so worried about long COVID. Um, I don't, I'm not saying it can't ever happen. And then I think, um, for instance, like actually it turns out if you get the vaccine, it actually reduces the long COVID risk. So I think... There's things you can do. I wouldn't spend a lot of time worrying about it if I were if I, if I were folks again. Unless uh, the, the the key thing is to avoid having severe bout of the thing that lands you in the hospital. Um, and for that, we have tools, things like the vaccine and 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 the drugs, the Paxlovid and other drugs. Whenever I've discussed COVID on the radio, I immediately get emails, phone calls, other types of correspondence from people citing someone they've discovered on the Internet or someone they've heard on an infomercial on another radio station talking about the benefits of X in terms of reducing the spread of COVID. Sometimes it's uh, vitamin C. Sometimes it's uh, steam therapy. Sometimes it's uh, whatever else, something from a flower, some herbal supplement. 
Are there any meaningful statistical studies that show any non-pharmaceutical treatment or preventative measure having an actual measurable effect in limiting the spread or helping the treatment of COVID? Well, I think vitamin D is very important. And so people that are short vitamin D tend to have worse bouts when they get COVID. Uh, I don't think it stops you from getting it, but I think uh, you can make make it worse if you do get it. Um, The other thing is, you know, I think generally if you are uh, fitter, less you're 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 not overweight um the more you exercise all of those things actually help quite a bit if you were to get COVID. and the next the bonus there is that if you do you know sort of improve your lifestyle uh in those ways you don't just benefit from covid uh you also benefit from reductions of risk from covid but also you benefit from reductions in risk of diabetes you'll feel you'll get more energy i think um those are non-pharmaceutical interventions that are actually quite effective um, for lots of reasons, and that's what I've been telling, telling people all through the pandemic, likely even before. Do you think there's any link between the harsher reactions to seasonal allergies that we've seen and the masking requirements that a lot of folks have had to deal with for a while, or is it just uh, the mild winter? I mean, I think what's happened is that, that the um, for two years, a lot of people have not been exposed to mm. pollens and things that have stayed stayed well, you know, indoors for a lot of the time, um, or they just haven't been they haven't got the normal exposure they, they they get. So the allergies are worse because we're sort of like getting exposed for the first time in two years to things that that uh, that, that you know we generally before had uh, routine exposure to. I think that's probably the most most likely cause of it. All right, Dr. Bhattacharya, I appreciate you being so generous with your time and so comprehensive with your answers. I'll look forward to doing this again soon. Thank you, Frank. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Uh, That's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation or anything else we've covered thus far, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Things haven't been the same since you came into my life. You found a way to touch my soul. That is the great Madonna. Uh, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, join our Facebook group. Just go on Facebook and uh, search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Hey, something that uh, I had wanted to tell you last week, but and I asked if it was okay for me to share it with you, and... Um, Nobody told me otherwise. I'll share with you. So since nobody told me not to, I will share it. But I do want to tell you, we're going to discuss um, space with Amy Shearer title. 
coming up in about 40 minutes. She has chronicled the incredible history of women in the space program. We have an update on the Long Island serial killer with Frank McKay in the 3 o'clock hour. And then legendary actor Tony Lobianco is going to be here in the 4 o'clock hour. So we're just getting started. We have a lot to get to. We have a lot to get to. Uh, but do join that Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. Or if you like my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Fan, just click like. You'll immediately get an invite to join the Facebook group, and you'll see our music uh, each morning. Now, what I was going to going to say yet last week, and I hope it's okay, but um, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be, is I'm very pleased to tell you that last week I signed a new contract here with the radio station to extend my time here as the host of The Other Side of Midnight for another three years. So uh, I got to tell you, I, I mean, I'm sure if I do something crazy or if people stop listening to the show, they can get rid of me. But I am ecstatic that I'm going to get to do this for another three years. Absolutely over the moon. Uh, this is what I'm doing right now is what I've always dreamed about doing my entire life. And uh, the fact that I get to do this for a living and I am going to get to do it for another three years is just about the greatest thing in the world. And a lot of times I just have to pinch myself to not just for the vicarious or the non vicarious thrill, the, the thrill of pinching oneself, but to make sure I'm not dreaming because it seems like a, a dream, a dream come true. So a big thank you to John and Margot Katsimatidis, our owners, for making this possible. And a big thank you to our president, Chad Lopez, and uh, everybody here at uh, management of this radio station because I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. And uh, I, we have some interesting things in the pipeline for the rest of this year. And uh, we have some interesting things in the pipeline, hopefully, for the next couple of years as well. So hopefully the audience will continue to grow. And I want to thank you for listening. And it's largely your patronage that has made the success of this show possible. So thank you. 800-848-9222. Jeff in Suffolk County has been holding a while. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Frank. Hey, Jeff. You've arrived, man. Uh, Dr. Bhattacharya, that's, uh, he's, he's big time, man. He's prime time. Uh, you're telling me. Absolutely. I, I don't know that he does many local radio shows at all, but uh, I'm thrilled that he agrees to come up with me, come on with me from time to time. I know he does national. How were your numbers yesterday? I didn't hear yet. I, 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 I will do an update on uh, everybody's numbers a little later. Excellent. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk about the marijuana thing. It is deaf. I don't care about the cops. Let the, the cops drink, the, the smoke pot, whatever. It's the kids I'm worried about. Because I was a kid at 14, and I smoked pot, and it was a gateway drug. That's who I'm worried about. Well, look, I have heard that from a lot of people. And I know for a lot of people, it can be a gateway drug. And for other people, it's not. Uh, for other people, booze can be a gateway drug, too. So, um, I, I look, I'm very concerned. I'm going to encourage my son not to do any kind of drugs, and I, I do consider marijuana a drug. I, I don't think it's the best thing for him. But uh, I, uh, the, the genie is, as I said, the genie is out of the bottle on that front. So the people want recreational legal marijuana, and uh, we have to figure out the logistics of that and how we're going to handle all these cops coming to work high 
is something that the state of New Jersey hasn't adequately prepared for. And as Neil said, these are people that are armed. I mean, this is a, a pretty big concern, I think. 800-848-WABC. Nancy's in Madison, New Jersey. Hello, Nancy. Hi. Um, I was listening to you with Dominic Carter, and you were talking about, um, I think he made the statement that he wondered how many generations it would take before people felt that they were American instead of Irish-American or African-American. Yeah. Your has a great influence on the public, so... Perhaps you would consider, when you refer to different ethnic groups, American of Irish descent, American of German descent, American of African descent. It would begin to change the way people think about being an American, maybe. Well, I actually do say that, Nancy. If you you listen to me, I usually will use that exact nomenclature. I'll usually say I'm uh, happy to be of Italian descent. I really don't consider myself Italian, even though my grandparents were from Italy, because I live here. And this is the country that I am full fledged uh, uh, member of and a vested stakeholder in. But uh, it's a fine point, Nancy. Uh, If I, um, you know, I'll make an effort to do that even more if I haven't been doing that. All right. uh, We're going to continue with your calls after the top of the hour. Amy Shira Title is going to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking with her. She's got this great YouTube channel called The Vintage Space, all about women and the space program, and the space program in general. I'm really into the space program, and uh, we'll pick her brain on a wide variety of subjects. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, and until next hour. Help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thank you for listening. Quick update on the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation. And um, because we have some other guests on on that subject coming on, not necessarily today, but in the future. But I, uh, there was two stories this week that I saw that really struck me as, as, as strange. So the Boston Marathon took place on Monday. And by the way, I know marathon training is one of the most difficult things that athletes can do. My brother and sister are uh, both in the midst of uh, training for the marathon now. They're, they're raising money for, for EB. Uh, we have a, a family friend who uh, suffers from EB. It's a terrible disease, and uh, I'm glad they're doing a lot of great charitable work on that front. And it, it's a great athletic endeavor as well. Uh, that being said, um, the what w- went on this year at the Boston Marathon is one of the most absurd, foolish, silly things I've ever seen. Uh, and I meant to talk about this on um, on Monday, but I didn't get to it. 
Do you realize that runners from Russia and Belarus were not allowed to compete in the Boston Marathon this year? I mean, this is this is the statement from the chief of the Boston Athletic Association. I'm not going to give him the courtesy of mentioning his name because this man is a total buffoon who should be shunned from every aspect of polite society. This is what he said. Like so many around the world, we're horrified and outraged by what we have seen and learned from the reporting in Ukraine. Okay. Agree. We believe that running is a global sport. And as such, we must do what we can to show our support to the people of Ukraine. Now, so citizens of Russia and Belarus were not allowed to take part. I don't know how many runners that that affects. I don't know if it's one runner, a hundred runners, a thousand runners. Doesn't matter. I don't care if it's zero runners. If it's a hypothetical person that we're discriminating against because of the country they happened to live in. And what's even more amazing to me is um, citizens of Russia and Belarus who are residents of other countries were still allowed to participate. Now, think of how idiotic that is. That means, you know, I had a fella on this show from Russia. He's an American citizen and a Russian citizen. Uh, You remember that fella? I believe his name was Tim Kirby. He votes in American election in elections from Russia, from Russia, lives in Russia, raises a family in Russia, plays football in Russia, and he's still an American citizen. He could have run in this race. And what he does is basically use his radio show and his YouTube channel as nothing but a mouthpiece for whatever Putin's doing. So that guy could have still run in this race. But if you're just a rank-and-file Russian runner who's never done anything having remotely political, you don't even know who the president is of Russia, let's say, you're banned under this idiotic criteria. Now, uh, let me tell you something. You want to do something against Putin? Let's have a discussion about sanctions. Let's have a discussion about military aid. Let's have a discussion about um, uh, NATO expansion. We've had all those discussions. But punishing Putin is not banning Russian runners from the Boston Marathon. Do you think Vladimir Putin cares if Russian runners are banned from the Boston Marathon? Tell me how this... And and just... It it just strikes me as the worst type of grandstanding and the worst type of thinking we're helping. This kind of feel-good measure, which does nothing for anybody. So tell me how this works, Mr. Head of the Boston Marathon. So Vladimir Putin is thinking, well, all right, let's uh, begin this big this big offensive to take back uh, Mariupol. Uh, let's make sure we ramp up our military encapsulation of uh, the Donbass region. Oh, they're stopping our runners from the Boston Marathon? Oh, hold everything. Hold everything. Next thing you know, they'll be renaming Russian dressing. Cancel everything. This is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. This guy should 
not be in a position to be the head of the Boston Marathon. This could be the most qualified running expert or athletic expert in the world. I would never hire this guy to be my dog walker. I don't have a dog. I wouldn't hire this guy to be my cat walker. Let me tell you. Well, unless I was very hard up for cat care. Well, I would not hire this guy to be to run my marathon. That's for sure. Um, this is idiotic with a capital I. I just I don't know what goes on in people's brains that they sit there and they read this article and said, oh, good. Clap like seals. Oh, they're banning Russians from, Russians from uh, participating in the Boston Marathon. Are they banning all Russians? No. If you're if you're a resident or a citizen of another country, you could still participate. Oh, good. And then why just these two countries? If we're now going with the mentality that runners are responsible for what their government is doing, are we not going to ban uh, athletes from Iran? Iran is certainly up to a lot of nefarious things. How about Saudi Arabia? We've chronicled the the misdeeds that Saudi Arabia has done, not only within the Middle East, but around the world, including sponsoring terrorism. How about China? You heard about the human rights violations that the Uyghurs are contending with. You've heard about what China's done to the people of Tibet, the people of Hong Kong, uh, the, the people of Taiwan, their own people in Shanghai with these horrible lockdown restrictions. But Chinese runners can still run? This is the stupidest thing I have seen in a lifetime of seeing stupid things. And the fact that there wasn't an immediate outrage from everybody that saw this article tells me that the Overton window of stupidity has been opened far too wide for my taste. Agree, disagree, 800-848-WABC. Whenever this guy's done running the Boston Marathon, they should hire him over to the, the 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 Metropolitan Opera House so that they can ban some Russian singers from participating in the Metropolitan Opera as well. Because that'll also do a lot to bring an end to this conflict. Come on, this is the stupidest thing in the world. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Now, there's also a story, and I'm going to make a prediction that. Everything you're about to hear is untrue. Alexei Navalny is a Russian dissident. And look, he's been uh, he's had a hard time, to say the least, because of his criticism of Vladimir Putin. And I think he's shown a lot of courage. Now, Alexei Navalny is saying that Russian troops killed a man for sharing his surname. That's what he's saying. This is based on an unconfirmed report. Alexei Navalny shared a photo of Ilya Navalny. And apparently this is a man that's been killed in Buka, Ukraine. And I'm sure as Ilya Navalny was killed in Ukraine, he was just thrilled that Russian runners will no longer be allowed to participate in the Boston Marathon. I'm sure that made his his death all the more easier for his family to take. I'm being a little facetious. But my question, and I read a number of articles on this, how does Alexei Navalny know that this guy was killed because of his last name? I mean, so this Alexei Navalny, this Kremlin critic, 
is saying that Russian soldiers killed this Ukrainian who shares his last name. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that lived in Bukha and died. Why would the Russian soldiers choose to kill this guy just because he has Navalny's last name? It makes no sense. So um, I don't. So Reuters has not been able to verify this. The New York Post has not been able to re- verify this. So far, nobody has been able to verify this except Alexei Navalny. I'm not disputing the fact that someone with the last name of Navalny was killed by the Russians. Unfortunately, that's what happens with war. It's one of the reasons war is so terrible. I'm not even disputing that war crimes might have been committed. I'm saying for them to say, well, he was killed for having the same last name, it it doesn't make any sense. Makes no sense. 800-848-9222. So Alexei Navalny shared a picture of this fellow's passport on Twitter, and what he said appeared to have been deliberately left next to a dead body in Buka. Quote, a completely innocent person was killed by Putin's executioners. What else can I call them? Definitely not Russian soldiers, because he is my namesake. Apparently they hoped he is a relative of mine. Well, is there any statement from a Russian soldier, or as he terms them, a Russian executioner, that he was killed because they have the same surname, or because they thought he was a relative? Is there any eyewitness that reports hearing a Russian soldier say, hey, that guy's name is Navalny, let's kill him. No. No. I mean, it makes no sense. Uh, so that's that's my two cents. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Six open lines if you want to comment. Gary is in the Bronx. Hello, Gary. Hey, how are you, Frank? Uh, I've been better. Hello. I've been worse. Oh, good. And first of all, uh, congratulations on your contract renewal. I do look forward to the next three years of fantastic entertainment from you. And I'm sure your bosses knew exactly what they were doing. It's not a fluke, you know, and it is a huge responsibility doing what you do. Uh, You make it look easy and casual, but believe me, there's a lot of finesse and professionalism that goes into what you do. And it's good to know that you're going to be here for a while. Well, thank you. Uh, Fingers crossed, Gary. I appreciate all your comments very much. And um, I I just want to comment about, um, first of all, masks. I'm not an expert on anything. And, Gary, because of your accent, I want to reiterate, you're talking about the things that we wear on our face, not the things that we, the buildings that we go to to pray towards Mecca and Medina, right? Oh, sorry about that. Mask. Mask. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, All I want to know is why have surgeons been wearing them in sterile environments for so long if they really don't work at all? You know, I'm just saying I'm not a scientist. I'm a lay person. And it's just a question I would like to pose if 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 it is that ineffective. Uh, It seems to be a mandatory protocol for any surgeon or operating person to have to wear that. Uh, it's a that's fair a- point, and it's a point that a lot of other people have brought up as well, uh, Gary. That's uh, uh, absolutely right. I mean, uh, I'm, that was um, Dr. Bhattacharya that made the comments that me, not me, but what I would say is 
I think the the surgical masks or the N95 masks might be a lot more effective in uh, preventing the spread of germs than just a cloth face covering. But in play in the in the Broadway theater that I went to on Saturday and in cities like Philadelphia, they consider a cloth face a cloth face covering for purposes of the law, essentially the same as a mask, so as a as a N95 or surgical mask. So I think the, the question is, should you really, if you're going to have a, a mask, um, a blanket mask mandate, should a, an N95 mask be considered the same as a cloth face covering? But I didn't say that. That was Dr. Bhattacharya that, that said not that. Really, that. That's not really what I called for. That was just a sidebar. Sure. Yeah, comment that, as you that, see fit. Go ahead. What I'd really like to have a a quick comment on is marijuana. And, you know, it keeps coming up like it's this novel new mystery drug that's just, there's a 3,000 year clinical study on marijuana. It's in the annals of every civilized society from Mesopotamia to Asia, to it's everywhere. And if it wasn't cultivated as a recreational drug, it was in the form of hemp and other various aspects. There is no secret to this. I myself am 60 years old. I've been smoking this thing for 50 years. I mean, I'm not sure if I sound stupid, coherent or lucid, but I think it's been a wonderful service to my life. I think it's been beneficial. It has so many uses. One, I can tell you off the top, I suffer from nightmares. Sometimes I'm afraid to go to sleep. If I smoke weed, I never, I don't remember anything. I never have a nightmare. And that's just one thing. You know, in reference to police going to work high and, you know, we're talking about civilized, intelligent, responsible people. Just to acquire that position, you have to have gone through a tremendous amount of hurdles. I don't see any more liable than a bottle of whiskey. Would you drink a half a flask of whiskey before you went to the job? No, you wouldn't. And I think people really need to stop associating marijuana with alcohol. I'm one of the very few people that had the privilege of growing up in a real three-story English pub with a cellar. And I can tell you distinctly, without a shadow of a doubt, marijuana and alcohol, there is no comparison. Thank you for giving me this much time to give a comment. I really do appreciate it, Frank. Well, I think if you do, if people think you sound stupid, it has nothing to do with marijuana. I think it's because you sound very similar to the Sasha Baron Cohen character, Ali G., and I know you said that Ali G was actually based on you. And so I think people just associate kind of silliness with that style of accent. If you're not familiar with Ali G, you can listen to this interview that he did with Pat Buchanan. Check this out. The election in America is a well important thing. So you better understand the politics of it. That's why I see with none other than my main man, Mr. Patrick Buchanan. So you better listen up and recognize. So how long was you president for? Zero. What? I didn't make it. I failed. Ain't there the problem if you have an election every however many years, that if someone don't tell the whole truth, 
you've got him for like four years, isn't it? If the people make a mistake, they have to live with it for four years, or they get their Congress to throw the president out. But sometimes people lie to get in. Like when me went for my interview for McDonald's in Staines, me said that me would work well hard. But the moment me got in there, me was eating like 15 McChicken sandwiches a day and selling a bit of little bit of McGunja on the side. And them only actually chucked me out when them found me wearing the Ronald McDonald costume in the boat. Here's what you do, though. When you're there, then your your organization has rules whereby they can throw you out. All right. We have rules whereby you can throw out the president. What else is the election going to be fought on this year? It'll probably be about Iraq. Does you think that Saddam's ever was able to make these weapons of mass destruction or whatever, or as they is called, BLTs? <laughs> the, was Saddam able to make them? Could he make BLTs? Yes, at one time he was using BLTs on the Kurds <laughs> in the north. Was it worth fighting? All right, war? all right. I, I, I mean, uh, but he does sound a lot like Gary from the Bronx. Uh, kudos to uh, to Sasha Baron Cohen for being able to maintain a straight face during that discussion. And you know, and you could see if you watch the video. Pat is just trying to be so patient w- with him. He- he's figured, all right, you know, this guy doesn't understand American politics. Maybe there's a language barrier. Uh, let me indulge this guy. And that's his, uh, that's, that's his reward. And you know what? Pat seemed to have a good sense of humor about it afterwards. I've asked him about it over the years. 800-848-WABC. Vinny is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Vinny. Hello, Frank. Frank, what happens to somebody when they're in a stolen car and they don't know it's stolen and they get caught by the cops? They go to jail also, right? They didn't do nothing. What happened to those over 4,000 Ukrainians that are dead? They didn't do nothing to Putin. They didn't do nothing to Russia. They're dead. There's over 400 children that are dead. they never even seen Putin. Uh, I've never heard you sound so silly before. Well, first of all, I don't think you've listened enough because I sound silly quite often. Second, um, but what does it, what do what does banning a Russian runner from the Boston Marathon do to help any of those Ukrainian children you from being killed? You all punished. You're all in the same boat. That's what I'm trying to relate to you. What happens to you when you're in a stolen car and you don't get like me? My friend knocked on my door and said, "Hey, Vinny, I got my uncle." My uncle let me hold his car. And next thing you know, we're getting pulled over. And I go to freaking jail for two days until my friend fessed up and said, I swear to you, I did knock on his door and tell him that it's my uncle's car. You go to, it's all, they're all in the same boat. But the, the, no, they're not. They shouldn't be. And you shouldn't have gone to jail. They shouldn't be, but they are. But, they, but that's, that's, the, that's the problem, Vinny, right? That's the problem. Because. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. But am I right also? Uh, well, yeah, you I mean, are. You are. But but once in in fairness to the police, and I don't know about this, your, your individual legal situation, but in fairness to the police, once they found out that you didn't have anything to do with that stolen car, they let you go and you were able to run in marathons, right? 
you think Putin would have let any of them go if they all of a sudden so, they changed that? Right. So, Vinny, Vinny, is that what we want to do? Is that what we want to do? Vinny, do we want to be we want to implement the Putin standard for American sporting events? Do we want to say what would Putin mm. do and then do the same thing? And then and then no, and I want you to answer. This, but then also, Vinny. If we're no, if, right. if we're going to do that, if we're going to say, all right, um, you know what? They're all in the same boat. Uh, Belarus, they have an evil dictator as their president. Russia, same thing. We're not going to allow their athletes. Why don't we prohibit the athletes from all these other countries that are doing horrible things? They're all in the deterrent cat- category. If you do this, maybe Putin will lighten up. This is what it's all about. It's all a game. It's all in the deterrent catalog. We do this and we do that. Maybe Putin will light up. Maybe he'll take a few days off and, and maybe less people wouldn't die those days he takes off. Uh, it's all a deterrent. Like they say, why should we send them this and that? Because it's a deterrent. If they know they got more firepower, Putin might lighten up. I, I don't understand why people say we don't help them. Because let's put it this way. If that was a black or if Ukraine was a black or a Hispanic person, we would have took out the Russians weeks ago. Okay? There's no way any white country in the world would have put up with that shit. Oh, wait, uh, be so careful there, uh, Vinny. I can't, I can't have you say that. I had to end the call there because you used a, a curse word. Um, second, I, I don't agree. Um, you know, Russia is a predominantly white country. And right now, the Russians are public enemy number one for the United States government. Second, look at what's happening in Yemen. In Yemen, you have a lot of people of color being murdered using weapons that were made in the USA, dropped on them by our allies, the Saudis. And I, I don't hear this, this kind of outcry you're talking about, Vinny. But I appreciate the call and the spirited discussion, if not the profanity that came with it. Rocco is in Connecticut. Hello, Rocco. Hi. Um, I'm wondering, uh, why is the State Department permitting these Russians to come and participate in American sports? So, um, I, you know, I can't speak for the State Department, but they're not participating in American sports. That's that's the whole point. I mean, the Boston Marathon you basically said they couldn't. And also, and you're absolutely right, athletes from Saudi Arabia and Iran, they should not be permitted to participate. Either we do it uh, across uh, right. Right. Uh, every uh, single country or not just isolate one that's kind of like, it's fashionable. It's made, Russia's making news now. So, it, Rocco, Rocco you're exactly right. And I have to run. But to your point, that's the word that I was lacking before. Whatever's fashionable, because it's now fashionable to be anti-Russian, we're going to ban Russian athletes. But if we're going to take this attitude, which I find pretty bizarre, quite sick, to be t- to tell you the truth, and completely bigoted, completely prejudiced that athletes are responsible for their leaders and their leaders actions then i got a long list of countries that i want included on the no marathon list now and this is the last thing i'll say because i'm tired of hearing myself talk about ukraine i can only imagine how tired you must be about it last thing i'll say 
And that's not to minimize the humanitarian disaster that's going on there. I, I recognize it's pretty serious stuff, but I'm not sure what else I have to add. This is the last thing I'll say. The Western leaders, the Western media, the Western think tanks, the Western uh, policymakers, they're saying two things that are completely contradictory. One, they're saying Putin's a dictator and he doesn't give his people any freedom. And two, they're saying, well, the individual Russians that Putin is denying freedom to, we should hold them responsible for what Putin's doing. Now, does that make any sense? Does that make any sense? Now, Osama bin Laden, he and al-Qaeda carried out terrorist attacks on America because he said, look, Americans get to choose their leaders. And if Bill Clinton and George Bush are doing things through sanctions and through bombing campaigns that's resulting in the deaths of innocent Muslim children, then the individual Americans should be held responsible because they're not throwing those guys out. Now, it's a total nonsense argument because George Bush, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, they don't listen to me. You know, so why should I be the victim of an Al Qaeda terrorist attack because of something a present? It makes no sense, but it makes even less sense in Russia if what they're saying about Putin is true. And let's assume for the purposes of this discussion that it is that Putin's denying his people any freedom, but screw them anyway. (laughs) They shouldn't be able to run in a marathon. I mean, does it make any sense to you? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's you see things as they are and you ask why and I see things as they're not and I ask why not. Wait a minute. Do you see things as they are not or as they are? Do you ask why or do you ask why not? Who see things? How do you see things? Amy Shearer title. She sees things as they are and are not, uh, especially when it comes to space. We'll talk about it straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert Shooting stars across the sky This magical journey will take us on a ride Filled with the longing, searching for the truth Will we make it till tomorrow? Will the sun shine on you? Midnight in the desert, and we're listening For millennia, humans have stared up at the sky, looked up at the stars, and wondered, what's out there? Well, uh, for the last 60 or 70 years, which is not very long in the grand scheme of things, we have begun to explore exactly what's out there. And I have always been fascinated, as I'm sure so many of you have, by continuing 
to wonder what's out there beyond what we know here on Earth and beyond what we see. Somebody who does a great job uh, not only wondering and asking a lot of the questions that many of us ask, but actually providing some answers, is Amy Shearer Title. She's an author. She's a popular science writer. She's a space flight historian, a YouTuber, and uh, the author of a, a fascinating book that a lot of people are talking about, Fighting for Space, the incredible true story of the female pilots who each dreamed of being the first American woman in space. Amy, thanks so much for coming on the radio with me. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, Amy, your book has gotten a lot of attention, uh, deservedly so, and you chronicle um, everything going back to the the Mercury 13 program and uh, the rest of the history of women in space. Give us a Reader's Digest version of what the contribution to the American space program women have played. Uh, well, women have played a very important part in the space program since its inception. I mean, the women played a sort of a hidden role. You know, if you're if you're looking back at the 60s, the men were what you saw. It's used the iceberg metaphor. And then, you know, everything under the water is all the engineers, all the doctors. And there were a lot of women who were specialists, um, you know, whether they were astronomers teaching about celestial navigation for going to the moon or they were the seamstresses making the, the parachutes that allowed them to land safely after a trip. Women have always had a really important role. It's just that it took women longer to kind of get into that center spotlight role as astronauts because there were a lot of limitations in what women could do, uh, both in the military as pilots and that kind of fed into the astronaut corps until about the, the late 70s when women were able to start serving as astronauts. And who, who was the first female astronaut in the United States? The first woman, the first American woman was Sally Ride in 1983. So, you know, a few a few years, a couple decades into the space age, it was we, we first saw the first American woman to fly in space. How have other countries like Russia, how have they been in terms of incorporating women into their space flights? About the same, uh, Valentina Tereshkova was the first woman in space, and she flew a full 20 years before Sally Ride. She flew in 1963, but she actually flew um, because of the press that American female pilots were garnering about their fight to actually join the astronaut corps in the early 60s. There was so much media attention around this idea of women taking on NASA for their what they felt was their fair shot in space that the Soviets kind of said, well, listen, I mean, it was a, let, let's be real. You know, the space race was a giant one upsmanship contest, you know, so the Soviets looking at this media were saying, well, if they're going to do this, we need to pull the rug out from under them again and score another first in space. You know, Soviets had first satellite, first human, first living thing in space, a lot of firsts. And they launched Tereshkova to get that first. And um, they actually launched the second woman in space as well in 1982, because NASA announced that Sally Ride was going up and they wanted to beat NASA one more time. You write that what I referenced earlier, the term or the name Mercury 13, which I think a lot of people have heard over the years, that that name Mercury 13 was inaccurate, that that was invented Mm -hmm. actually much later by a Hollywood producer in the 1990s. Any other public misconceptions about the Mercury 13 uh, program that you can clear up? 
Oh, so many. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the, the myth of the, what I kind of call the myth of the Mercury 13 was that there was this group of 13 women who had the quote-unquote right stuff but the wrong sex to fly in space. Um, the reality was they weren't a unit. They weren't a group like you kind of see the male astronauts were at the time. You know, the Mercury 7, they were dubbed by the press in the, in the late 50s, 1959, when they were introduced. They were a group. They trained together. They were very much a unit. The women never all met. The women were never all oh. in the same place. And they, even though they did medical testing, you know, medical testing doesn't clear you to do something specialized like fly in space in an era where literally everything was unknown. Like, you know, where I, you know, your eyeballs might distort in zero gravity. That was a real concern people had in the early 60s. So not only that, but the women weren't all in agreement about what the best, um, the best next step for them in this kind of desire to fly in space was. Some of them thought that, you know, really causing a stir and getting media attention was the best way to potentially force NASA into allowing them to fly in space. Some felt that it was going about things the wrong way, that it was going to piss off the right people and make sure that they had no chance in space. So not only were they not a coherent group, they weren't all in agreement. They were backing different paths. They, they you know, some of them thought that it was a real program. Some of them thought that it wasn't. It was it was a very messy thing that we've kind of put this this banner of the Mercury 13 over because it it sounds really good on TV. I've often asked myself the question, and I've never come up with a satisfactory answer, that if I were to get a tattoo of something, what would it be? And there's nothing I'm really fond enough of, I don't think, that I would actually get the image tattooed on me. I have mm-hmm. to say, though, your tattoo is one of the more interesting tattoo selections that I've come across. Tell folks what your tattoo is. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> my, uh, I have a tattoo on my, my left inner bicep um, of a Gemini Regalo wing, which is an extremely obscure landing system now so developed in the, in, from 1961 to 1965. So imagine a, a triangle that's got like a seam running down the middle. So it's kind of got two lobes and that thing hung over a little blunt capsule and it was designed to make the capsule land like an airplane-ish on a runway. And the idea was, you know, let's not send guys into space, have them survive two weeks and then potentially drown um, because of splashdown landings and, you know, not employ a huge chunk of the Navy. So, um, yeah, that was, it was a really interesting thing. It's what I wrote my, um, it's what I wrote my, master's degree on my master's thesis on and I just I love it I kind of fell in love with this weird story and it got me loving weird history weird weird stories of history but they, they never used that right that Gemini Regalo they, ring? they tried really hard oh. and it sent two guys to the hospital wow I can imagine I can imagine not how I'd like <laughs> yeah. to travel to space that's for sure no no would you say obviously you're super interested in space uh, I am too uh, I know this might be a different. There's no. There's no way to answer this other than your own anecdotal experience. Do men seem to be more interested in space exploration than women, or does it break down about even along the genders? I my own experience, I think, is skewed because I I typically I focus in history. I really am focused in kind of pre pre space age and early space age space race and that definitely skews male i mean my youtube numbers are like 97 percent male which is obscene but i think a lot of it is that you know when you 
when you're talking about the history of space and kind of how that's developed generationally, in in the 60s, it was, you know, little boys were the ones who were told they could be astronauts and little girls were the ones who told were, were told that they could, you know, do something else, but not actually be the astronauts. So what I see in my own audience, and this is purely anecdotal, is that it's, you know, my own experience. It's guys who grew up, you know, as young boys watching the moon landing, love kind of reliving this stuff or learning new elements of it. And, you know, now as adults, they kind of pass that on. But it really is a very male dominant in the history. I think it's definitely less that way now in kind of modern space, but I definitely see my audience use male. Uh, well, no, I, again, who knows? Maybe we both come from a, a skewed perspective, but that's been mm-hmm. my experience as well. If people are just talk, mm-hmm. t- tuning in, we're talking with Amy Shira Title. She is a uh, an author, a popular science writer, a spaceflight historian, and a YouTuber. If you want to check out her YouTube channel, you can just search Vintage Space on YouTube, or you can go to her website, and it has links to her book and everything everything uh, that uh, that she's doing. It was interesting to see uh, that uh, on one of the early Jeff Bezos flights that he selected the Wally Funk, the NASA mm-hmm. aviator. I mean, that was sort of a nice nod to the contributions that women have made to the space program, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I've spoken with a few uh, friends and colleagues who are pilots who just, for them personally, they were so moved to watch her finally fly in space. Because like I said earlier, some of the women that were involved in this early push for women to fly in space, she was on the campus, you know, she firmly believed that they had every chance to do it. And she, you know, really pushed hard to have their voice heard and to kind of get get them seriously considered uh, to be astronauts. She actually applied for the astronaut corps, I think twice, once women were al- were um, were allowed to apply as astronauts, and she just never had the right qualifications. It was never the right time. And she had a stunning career in aviation. So for her to finally get up in space, even, you know, not in not as the commander of a mission, but just to see that, to have that experience, like having having lived with her story for four years and writing, fighting for space, it was like really awesome to see how happy she was about it. It was pretty great. Have you submitted your name to Mr. Bezos to get on the waiting list to go to space? Uh, I have not. Uh, as of yet, I, I think I'm going to have to wait for the ticket prices to go down. <laughs> Same here. Same here. <laughs> uh, you know, I am wondering your thoughts. You know, we've seen a, an incredible resurgence of interest over the last five years in UFOs or UAPs. They've gone mainstream in terms of the, the coverage. New York Times, 60 Minutes, uh, CBS Sunday Morning, Fox News, CNN. They've all done major profiles on what's happening with all these UAPs. We've seen a lot of congressional action on the subject of UAPs. They've changed the reporting requirements. They We now know that they were funding this mysterious UFO watching program called A tip uh, to the tune of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Do you think that the the explosion of interest in UFOs slash UAPs, does that take away at all from the funding and the media attention that should be properly paid to what's happening in terms of what NASA's doing or even private space innovators like Bezos and Musk? I don't know if it takes away kind of monetarily. Does it add? Does it add uh, to the desire for space exploration? Yeah, I find the sort of like modern, like current fascination with UFOs slash UAPs fascinating. 
fascinating. Like people who would never think about this stuff are suddenly like super into it. What I what I think is neat is that it's it's getting more people thinking about space and talking about space and kind of aware of it. But where I think the hesitant to use the word danger, but where I think the kind of the negative side maybe is, is that it's giving us this really skewed idea of what would be an exciting find in space. Mm. You know, we have this idea now that the 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 best thing that anyone could find in terms of extraterrestrial life or, you know, anything on another planet would be something sentient that's interacting with us. When in reality, you know, you talk to any scientist who's working on Mars or working on robotic missions to another planet, like finding fossilized evidence of past bacteria on Mars would be amazing. You know, anything, anything like that, any tiny thing, you know, a single cell organism on another planet would be a huge find, but it's not sexy. You know, it's not exciting for the average person the way a strange phenomenon in a video that you can find when you're scrolling on your phone kind of jumps out. So I think, you know, it's it's neat that it's getting people thinking and excited, but I, I would hate for us to find something legitimately like super cool and verified and have people be like, Eh, it's not as exciting as right, that. Right, right, right. Every, everybody's expecting uh, the guy from the day the Earth stood still uh, to, you know, walk right onto mm-hmm. the White House or something. Uh, do you have a take on what we what we've seen with all these UAP videos, the so called um, Tic Tac videos, and these other videos, these flying pyramid videos? Do you have a take on what these objects are? I'm really not sure, and it's it's um, a little bit out of my wheelhouse to speculate too much. Um, I, what I think that's interesting about this is that, you know, there are things we legitimately don't know what they are, which is not to say that they are therefore alien. Um, you know, it could be that what we're seeing is, is artifacts in our radar. We're seeing, you know, the military testing some kind of drone around pilots to see how they react to this thing in the sky and they don't know what they're looking at but some commanding officer does now there's there's i think there's probably a very normal explanation for a lot of these things that you know it's probably classified on some level we don't we don't actually get to know everything the military does uh, we're talking with uh, amy shearer title you could check out her youtube channel vintage space some of the non-uap related space news news which is pretty exciting is the Mars rover Perseverance has been uh, doing some really interesting explanation uh, exploration on Mars. What are some of the highlights of what uh, of what we've seen from the the Perseverance rover? You know, I have to be totally honest with you and tell you that I have not been following the mission closely enough to be able to answer that properly for you. Um, you didn't have I've, to be that I've, honest. I've... You could have fooled me. Believe me. I wouldn't have known if you yeah, were Yeah, but you know what? Someone would know, and then I'd feel bad. No, I've, um, because I work so much in, in history, I, I kind of get the highlights of, you know, the really good pictures of some of the discoveries, but... um. I haven't been following the mission play by play as much as on this one as I have in previous ones. I apologize. Oh no, please, it's okay. I'm sorry for throwing that that at you unexpectedly. Hey, uh, speaking of history, you know, so much mm. of space history seems to deal with the uh, with the moon landing and the Apollo program and the trips to the moon. And I know now there's plans to go back to the moon, but why haven't we been to the moon? In 50 years, I mean, for something that was so exciting and that seemed to jumpstart not only so much in the way of technology, but uh, so much in the way of uh, inspiring people to want to be a part of the space program. Why hasn't there been a lunar mission in 50 years? Uh, I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that. But I think the biggest one 
is is a, a well, it's probably a tie for money and necessity. It is going to the moon is like really, really expensive and really dangerous. I think we've become in the last 30 years or so, we've especially in the last 10 years with private companies getting involved. I think we're under the impression that space flight is getting becoming routine, that it's easy, that it's safer. And it's still really hard. I mean, everything about going into space is trying to kill you. Um, It's hugely dangerous. It's hugely expensive. We haven't really had a need to spend that much money and put people's lives at risk to go to the moon. You know, we, we did it in the 60s because of a, a need to beat the Soviet Union and to express technological dominance. You know, that was an expression of the Cold War. And, you know, Apollo lost funding. We didn't see the program through. The last three missions were canceled and things were scaled down big time and we never had the money to continue it. So when you when you look at like the lack of a Cold War, the lack of a, a kind of global conflict that's pushing it forward, coupled with, you know, NASA has a, a, a tiny fraction of its budget that it had in the 60s. It just hasn't really been in the cards. And I, I have had this conversation with friends recently of, you know, we're going back to the moon soonish, but why? You know, it's, it, it is still that question of like, we don't have that big need aside from kind of inspiration. Um, which is in itself a need, but you know, there's no overarching plan that that is kind of obvious. It's kind of it's a little bit loose. So it's it's interesting that we're kind of thinking about doing it now. But you know, Apollo inspired a whole generation of engineers. So maybe we'll get that again. We'll get that influx of people kind of pursuing science careers. It would um, be good yeah. for the planet, I think. <laughs> uh, no, it, it certainly would be. It would be interesting. Uh, lastly, I'll end with a, a question based on, on this planet. Uh, I know you have been a boxing enthusiast from time to time. <laughs> Saturday, a uh, big fight out of the United Kingdom, Tyson Fury versus Dillian White uh, for the um, you know WBC and the Ring Heavyweight Championship and the WBC Interim Heavyweight Championship. It, it should be a, a pretty big deal, and it's taking place in London. Do you have somebody that you're taking in this fight? No, I don't. I, whenever I've watched fights, it's usually usually with my boxing coach to look at the way they're moving around opponents so I can try to understand why I keep getting hit in the face. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think people do anything to get a look at that tattoo on your bicep. So I think a, a lot of folks will uh, will take the chance. Hey, uh, Amy, thanks so much. I really appreciate the time this morning. And uh, if people are interested in in buying your book, I hope they'll uh, they'll do so. The book is called Fighting for Space. And uh, you also have another book called Breaking the Chains of Gravity, which we'll talk about next time you're on the show. Thanks so much. Sounds good. Have a great evening. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC.
Michael Jackson here on the other side of midnight. The singer, not the radio talk show host. So I knew I was in trouble yesterday when I received um, this message from my wife yesterday, uh, about 20, almost exactly 24 hours ago at 3 a.m. As well as your son slept last night, he's sleeping poorly tonight, already up twice after three and a half hours, then again after two and a half hours. So if she sends me that at 3 a.m., I'm here. I mean, there's not much I could do. I felt bad. And then uh, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm leaving as soon as, uh, as soon as I wrap up the business report for the 5 a.m. hour, and I'll look after him so that you can hopefully get some sleep. And then uh, I get this message at 4.14 a.m. He's crying again, leaving him for a bit, um, a little bit later, still screaming. I'm going in because he didn't stop screaming for a while. And then she's now very, very curious about when I'm coming home. Uh, If he's sleeping well, Rachel's of the attitude, oh, you know, stay out forever. But uh, when he's screaming, then she wants me home. So she says, you're coming home normal time, right? And I said, yes. And then at 613, right as I was coming home, she said, uh, he's still crying. I'm shutting off his monitor. And I'll tell you, this kid. He slept really well the day before and the day before that. But yesterday, he just did not want to stay asleep. Poor kid. I felt. And then I, I got home. I went into his room and he's just staring up at me and he's not crying. And he's just sort of making all these making all these noises, almost trying to be conversational. And uh, then I said, all right, I'll leave him. If he's not crying, I'll leave him. And then I we have a bed in his room. So I lied down in his bed in the hopes of trying to get some sleep for a little while. That lasted about 15 minutes. And then he's screaming, screaming, screaming. So I change him. He needed to be changed. I change, I change him, put him back down. Screaming again. Now, not only would I like to try and get some sleep, I uh, want my wife to get some sleep because she's been up all night with him. So I put him in bed with me, which I know a lot of people say you shouldn't do. But I put him in bed with me, and he slept another maybe 15, 20 minutes. And uh, and I got to sleep another 15, 20 minutes, which was great. Getting that 15 minutes, it really is so revitalizing. So then we go downstairs. Figure maybe he's hungry. I give the kid some baby formula while I watch the West Wing. And uh, we're both enjoying the West Wing. Not my wife and I, but Carmine and I. Uh, I'm liking it. I'm liking it more than when I first started the show. So I'm liking it. And so I'm watching the West Wing. I'm feeding him baby formula. Stop the West Wing. And I'm listening to Bernie and Sid. A good edition of the Bernie and Sid show yesterday. And uh, But this kid is showing no signs of wanting to go to sleep. He's up. Up and at him. He has no interest in going to sleep. Doesn't go to sleep at all. Um, I think maybe until my wife got up around 9 or 8.30 uh, when she started looking after him around 9. Um, or actually, uh, we had a babysitter that that comes at 9. I think he slept from 6.15 when I got home until 9, uh, 20 minutes at most. So did not get a lot of sleep yesterday. And I felt bad that he was up and down. And uh, giving my wife a hard time. So fingers crossed that uh, he is uh, he is doing a better job sleep that he does a better job sleeping today. You never know with this kid, you know, two, three days, he'll sleep fine. And then he'll be up 
So I don't know. I think next week what we're going to do is um, start giving him cereal so that they maybe he'll have a fuller belly by the time that he goes to bed and won't want to wake up right away. So hopefully that'll do it. We'll see. That's going to be, we haven't really, he's four, four months now, but we haven't given him any sort of solid food yet. So we'll try cereal next week and see how that goes. I mean, he seems very content, except when he's screaming, but we'll see how that goes. Hey, coming up, we'll talk about the Long Island serial killer. Some major updates on that case with Frank McKay. Until then, keep asking questions. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They run in a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight, and it's days like today uh, where I remember the words and wisdom of the great Bob Grant. Where he would say routinely, the world is sick at getting sicker. A former assistant principal is suing a Virginia school board. Now, before I tell you why she's suing... I I think that you need to understand, as I've always tried to give you this disclaimer, that you have to be very careful when you make judgments about a case based on only one side of a lawsuit. That's why a lot of times I don't report them, because everything that a plaintiff claims in a lawsuit could be total nonsense. And that's why when there's a, a, a jury verdict or a judge verdict in a lawsuit, that carries a much different weight. Like the story we did the other other day with the fella who was fired because the workplace celebrated his birthday and then the jury gave him $450,000. That's different than just allegations in a lawsuit. That being said... I find this to be so emblematic of where we are in society today. So I'm going to read you some of the highlights of this and invite you to comment. And then we'll discuss the Long Island serial killer and the updates on that front. A former assistant principal is suing a Virginia school board claiming that she was forced out of her job for a slip of the tongue during a mandatory anti-racism training based on critical race theory. Emily Mace, Mays, M-A-I-S, Mayas, Emily, who was the assistant principal uh, at Agner Hurt Elementary School, 
accused the school district in this lawsuit that was filed yesterday of pushing her out in the fall of last year after she mistakenly used the words colored people as she railed against the training session. Though she apologized for the, quote, slip of the tongue, a teacher's aide who is black verbally attacked her in front of all training attendees. That's what the lawsuit claims. We only have one side of this story. The aide accused her of, quote, speaking like old racists who told people of color to go to the back of the bus. Following that training, May said that multiple colleagues told her that the teacher's aide and her friends were openly calling her vulgar names at work, including that white racist B-word and that two-faced racist B-word. Mays complained to the principal that the harassment was causing her substantial emotional distress, preventing her from focusing on her job, and making it impossible for her to effectively manage the employees involved in the harassment. But the principal refused to take any action to address her concerns, again, only according to one side of this complaint. So she submitted her resignation on August 29th and left her job on September 10th after being forced to apologize to her colleagues in what her lawyers described as ritual shaming. On This is from the lawsuit. On information and belief, from beginning to end, the apology meeting was carefully orchestrated by district officials to humiliate, shame, and traumatize Ms. Mayes, Mays for an accidental slip of the tongue in order to make an example of her and to communicate to other district employees to the, the type of punishment that would occur if anyone dared question the new reigning anti-racist orthodoxy, which is racist at its core. That's what the filing says. So give me your take on this. Uh, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. It's interesting. So this is a 45-page lawsuit filed by the conservative Christian legal advocacy group, the Alliance Defending Freedom, on her behalf. And they're seeking back pay, compensatory damages, and punitive damages, as well as attorney fees. Now, I can buy a lot of this. I buy that there was a slip of the tongue. I buy that one of the other teacher's aides lambasted her in front of everybody. And I buy that they called her names, including white racist B-word. I buy all that, okay, because it just strikes me as where we are today. Now, here's where I don't know that she should get any money. She submitted her resignation on August 29th and left her job on September 10th after being forced to apologize. She submitted her resignation and left her job. She wasn't fired for this. She may not have liked having to apologize. It might have been an uncomfortable workplace situation for us. So maybe you complain to your union. 
Maybe you file a grievance. Maybe you even sue. But to quit your job and then file a lawsuit, I don't know about you. That's where, I don't know, I feel like she she's trying to make lemonade out of lemons here. She, I have no doubt that this was an uncomfortable situation for her. But did she get any money after quitting? I don't think so. I don't think so. 800-848-WABC. Uh, that's 800-848-9222. She's also seeking attorney's fees. Uh, the director of the Alliance for Defending Freedom Center for Parental Rights said in a statement, instead of training faculty members to embrace students of all races, Albemarle County school officials are using a curriculum that promotes racial discrimination. The, tra- uh, the training sets up a classic catch-22. It encourages all staff members to speak their truth. But when a white person like Emily raises concerns about the divisive content, she's deemed a racist in need of further anti-racism instruction. Uh, Again, the statement continues. Emily believes every person is made in the image of God and entitled to equal treatment under the law. Um, Look, I, I, it looks to me like this group and this teacher They don't like that they were forced to teach this kind of thing. They don't like that they were forced to go through this uh, anti-racism training. Um, There was a slip of the tongue, and I'm sure she was reproached by it from some of her colleagues. But as far as a lawsuit goes, I don't understand why everything has to go to a lawsuit. I don't know. Phil Giaramita, the district spokesman, told the New York Post in an email that officials have not yet been served with the lawsuit and have not had the chance to review its allegations. Uh, they said, quote, we're looking to we're looking forward to the opportunity at some point in the future to responding to the suit's claims in the appropriate legal forum. So we'll see. Maybe they're going to have some other things to say. Maybe they'll say that um, she's a bad teacher or something. I don't know. 800-848-9222. Tell me what you think. Let me begin with Larry in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Okay, Frank, we're about to have a spirited debate because I couldn't I couldn't disagree with you more. In fact, I disagree with you so much that I'm going to actually say that you're wrong because um, basically had she not resigned from a legal perspective, her damages would have appeared to be minimal because, in other words, she would she could not have claimed that the working environment was so corrupted for her that she had to resign. And if she was so emotionally impacted, how could she go on with the job? So it would have been a frivolous lawsuit. So the whole gestalt of the of, of the damages was her resignation. That's where the damages come from. That she was forced to resign. That's what she's going to claim. That it was a hostile environment. Right. That is that she what she's no longer continuing. But but did she have to resign? I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know no. that she did. Uh, well, that, she didn't have to resign, but I mean, if, if, I mean, you could just imagine the situation that somebody is so humiliated. I mean, if somebody is humiliated, would you would you stay in a place that you're humiliated? I mean, look at Whoopi Goldberg. When she was suspended for two weeks, she threatened to quit, and, and it was genuine because she was humiliated. But then, and then she considered the money she was getting, and she reconsidered. But um, 
you know, that that's the point. You can't go on when you're humiliated and stay in an environment like that. Yeah, Larry, I, I don't know. I, it just looks to me like um, she's looking to use this opportunity to make this an issue that's in a national spotlight. I hear everything you're saying, and, and you know, obviously you're not wrong. I, I am somebody that believes um, – First of all, colored people used to be a very acceptable term. And in fact, uh, the NAACP, and I believe that's still the case, but for many years, it was it called the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. So I, I, it's only yeah. relatively recently that that's become a super offensive term. So I, I don't begrudge her for having slip of the tongue. I don't think she should have been lambasted by a colleague. I don't think she um, should have been mistreated and called a name. It's just then when you quit and then file a lawsuit, then that's where I think maybe she's trying to capitalize on this a little bit. But you but yeah, I understand that. But that's only a possibility. You're being presumptive. And if she's a Christian, you got to think she's a truthful person. Christian people don't generally uh, – they're, they're, they're truthful. You have to be truthful as Christian, well, right? First of all, she I, would be corrupting her faith to, uh, to do that. A couple of things, right? I'm not monitoring her church attendance. I don't know how often she's going to church, too. I don't know that she's a Christian. I know that the conservative Christian group, the Alliance Defending Freedom, is representing her. But the fact that she is a Christian has no basis – in my evaluation of this lawsuit, I've known a lot of Christians that are just as capable of lying as as atheists or Muslims or Jews or anybody else. So I, that holds no weight as far as I'm concerned. Bob's in the Bronx. Hello, Bob. As a person without color, I'm offended that she's offended. All she did was make a mistake in the order of words. People of color are colored people. All right. So you're offended um, at what exactly? Hello. Yeah, Bob. Thank you. Joe's in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, I think there's an element where, you know, there's like a gang up on individuals within the context of the working atmosphere. So you, you have to say it's in the air where, you know, they're, it's intimidation and threats that are, are coming from society at wide and then trickling down to someone like this. So I see it as more a society-wide thing, trickling down to an individual. Obviously, she's likely smart enough or qualified enough to teach with some discretion, and they're trying to jam a particular curriculum down her throat verbatim. And, you know, this is where people... I think people should be standing up for themselves more against this, like, this tidal wave of... of uh, uh, of this stuff, you know, it's peripheral, really. I'm sure the woman's a sincere teacher, more than likely, and just trying to do a job. Well, so uh, where what does that mean with respect to this lawsuit, then, Joe? Well, in other words, like it's the idea, you know, she it's it's employment, you know, it's a contract of sorts, and people need to be able to go to a workplace without undue harassment. Right. So it sounds like you think she has a case then. Uh, I think the woman was being harassed and they're just taking what's being pronounced in the news, the overhang of that, and, and, and pointing out it's like pin the tail on the donkey type of thing. And, and, you know, they're trying to 
to like look for this stuff. They're looking for it and they're looking to attack. Well, I, yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah. I don't disagree with that at all. I think that uh, yeah. I think that's true. I think that's true. Tom's in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, first of all, Frank, I'd like yeah. to say yeah. find Bob Grant's statement on borders, language, and culture. See if we get him saying that in one of in the, his old program. I appreciate the advice, uh, Tom. Now the um, the other situation is this woman, obviously to me, uh, had quit in haste. You know what I mean? She was hasty when she did exactly. That. That, that's my view. Uh, that's my view exactly. Yeah, and uh, but that but you can't get into squabbles. There's a lot of this stuff floating around. You know, of people pointing fingers at other people for saying innocuous things. Right. So what does that mean then, Tom? Uh, meaning that that there's a lot of idiocy going on. That's all. To me, it's idiocy. I'm with you. I'm with you, Tom. Thank you. Jimmy's on Staten Island. Hello, Jimmy. Hello, Frank. Knock it off. Not you, but to everybody in society. I mean, this one's looking for a lawsuit. There's no lawsuit. Tell the lady, oh, right. I see, a mistake. You, 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 off. you and I are on oh. the same page here, right, Jimmy? This is just... Yeah, well, did this, yeah but be tough. Yeah. Well, if I made a mistake with my word, all right, knock it off. You want to bust my chops? Go ahead. And then I call a cop. I call this. I call superintendent. Right away, I agree with you. The floodlights come on. When this other guy, Adams, over there said of white crackers, white the, what I got to do, get a whole group of people from Staten Island to go make a scene and make this and that. Too much. People got to live and do what they got to do. Stop. Everybody's waiting for that one word, that one sound that don't sound right to them. Right. And ba-ba-boom, they make malafarut. <laughs> we can't have it no more. Society's <laughs> melting down. Who cares about this teacher? Where people getting killed in the, the other side of Europe. Inflation all the way up. People getting killed, pushed in subways. A woman stabbed 60 times. I give a flying fig about this teacher who got a mavati ragaz and then stay home. Thank you, Jimmy. Well said. Jimmy is, without the reference to the flying fig, he's saying exactly what I'm saying. I think it's terrible for somebody to be reproached for a slip of the tongue. I think an uncomfortable work environment is awful, but was a lawsuit necessary? Everybody's got to run to court with a team of lawyers. No, not for me. I'll tell you, in my case, uh, I actually am blessed to have a very pleasant work environment, uh, but I would never quit this job. I don't care. Do you hear the dopey things that I say on the radio on a daily basis? Don't you think there's a possibility that Matt Lee or Alex Barnard or uh, Deb Valentine or even the great Frank Diaz could take issue with something that I say and start a, a whispering campaign whisper about me on a regular basis? And I can tell you, I, I'm not quitting. They'll have to fire me. They'll have to drag me out from my, uh, my, my, my fingernails will be dug into the console here at the station. No way. So I, I'm with Jimmy completely. Um, so 800-848-9222. Uh, JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hello. Good morning. All right, listen, people got to start toughening up. I don't think there's a lawsuit here. I mean, 
legally, I think there's nothing there besides this nonsense civil suits that just keep adding up everywhere. But people need to toughen up. Like, come on, stop. Do you know what police officers hear every day? Yes. You know what a nurse nurse in an emergency room hears every day? And that's these are people who are trying to help you. Like, come on, thicken up that skin a little bit. What did you hear? Was it really that bad? Enough. Who cares? Yeah, again, it, to me, Jr., it would be a different situation if she had if she had been fired, but she didn't get fired. Right. She she had they to they she had to make transfers. an apology. Right, they could offer you a transfer if your work is that if it's that right, right hard. You never requested anything. You didn't. You, the first sign of a little pressure, you quit, and now you want to sue people because that's the only way you've been. Now you've been kind of sculpted to do that, though. Because when you look at people throughout Hollywood, Johnny Depp and his, you know, you, you, you made it so I can't work because of the words you said. That's the way people are now sculpted because of society. Just sue everybody and we'll worry about it later. Yeah, well, that is interesting, that Johnny Depp case that you mentioned. And uh, we're going to we'll do a legal segment within the next couple of days. What day is today? Wednesday. So tomorrow I think we're booked. Friday we might be booked because we're doing two hours of Ask Frank Anything. Monday I'm going to we'll try and do a. Uh, a legal segment of some sort, because I find that Johnny Depp case pretty interesting. Actually, this Johnny Depp case, basically his ex-wife said that he assaulted her. Now, Johnny Depp makes his living by being a bankable star that people want to pay money to come see. If people think that he's a wife beater, I don't know that people are going to want to pay money to see him. So I think that he might actually have a little bit of a case there. Um, But in this case, this is a woman who quit because she had to apologize for saying something that people found offended, offensive, ran to find a conservative legal advocacy group and then filed a lawsuit. And then the conservative legal advocacy group called a newspaper to get an article written about it. It's just there's injustice and there's injustice outrageous bring back the guy that had the unwarranted birthday party all of a sudden that guy's looking a lot more sympathetic to me lamar's in the boogie down bronx hello okay good morning professor morano how are you doing great lamar thanks for asking okay all right yeah i hope rachel and baby carmine are doing well hey i haven't gotten any word that there's been any uh late night screaming today so i think we're okay Okay, okay. All right, good, good, good. Yeah, Professor Morano, just to make it quick, like, right, I think that situation, like, spy, um, spiraled out of control. Yeah, yeah, so... Uh, all right, tell- I think it spiraled out of control, all right? Uh, I think what a colleague should have done <clears throat> was, like, pulled her to the side and held, like, you know, extensive dialogue with her. <clears throat> but then, okay, look... She- as you stated, like, right, and I just ran across an article, I think, in the AM News, right, with the um, NAACP. I mean, okay, hey, look, okay, as far as I'm concerned, colored, it's not really offensive. And I'm African-American, all right? And, uh, yeah, I think that's <laughs> Well, thank you, I Lamar. I think that our colleagues, yeah, I think that our colleagues 
should not have like badgered her. The no, way of that course they not. Did. Of course not. Of course you know? not. Absolutely not. Let me be very and, clear. I, I don't think uh, they should have given her a uh, a hard time at all. Look, I think if somebody intentionally tries to say or do something to to hurt people. Uh, or to be offensive to people or insult people, I think that's really reprehensible. And I think that's one thing. But if someone makes a mistake, just an innocent slip of the tongue, come on, let's all be the let, let's all come on, let's all be adults and cut people some slack, right? Hey, uh, uh, some major breakthroughs potentially on the horizon in the case of the Gilgo Beach murders. That's right. The Long Island serial killer, which apparently we have uh, been trying to solve for some time. We'll get a new DA in town, a new police chief in town, and we might be on the verge of a breakthrough. We're going to check in with Frank McKay, who's uh, somebody that's been following this case from the beginning, and uh, we'll get his take on where we are with things now. Uh, This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, well, for about the last year or so, we've been trying to give you some of the history, along with any breakthroughs in the investigation of the Gilgo Beach murders. Now, these murders uh, have captivated the attention of international audiences. There have been books written about it. There have been podcasts written about it. There have been radio shows upon radio shows done about it. Uh, there have been uh, specials on Netflix. I don't think there's a person alive that has done more to further the understanding of this case and uh, really work hard towards finding the identity of the killer or killers of the Gilgo Beach murders, who is the Long Island serial killer? That is a question that uh, Frank McKay, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host and longtime uh, chair of the New York Independence Party, has been asking. Kind enough to join us this morning. Frank, good morning. Thanks so much for joining me. Frank, thanks for having me. Last time we spoke, by the way, you uh, you were had just left Ukraine. I guess you made it out of Eastern Europe okay. Yeah, no, they didn't get me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I spent five days uh, in the Ukraine and 15 days total around the area. And, uh, you know, listen, a heartbreaking situation there and kind of took me away from Lisk a little bit. But over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've uh, we've we've gotten a lot of information. Sure. And in the meanwhile, the um, the, the crew here, uh, the new D.A., the new police commissioner, the FBI, the uh, now the sheriff's office is involved, U.S. attorneys. Uh, they've been meeting on a weekly basis, and they're, they're putting serious work, I believe, uh, into into solving LISC, the Long Island serial killers. And uh, I, I believe they're, they're actually getting somewhere. Wow. All right. So let's talk about what happened last week. Uh, last week, authorities in Suffolk County 
released some new video evidence from these Gilgo Beach murders showing the uh, last known surveillance of Megan Waterman, who was one of the victims. Additionally, uh, Suffolk County Police also announced that it was doubling uh, the Crime Stoppers reward to $50,000 for information that leads to an arrest and a conviction in this case. So it sounds like you're pretty optimistic at this point, Frank. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not so sure it's because of of that particular video. Uh, the video, uh, I, I think, could use a little more explaining. There's a gentleman that the like the blogosphere has uh, has picked up on. And I say gentleman, um, you know, guy in the pink shirt and trying to find the identity of him. If anyone has seen the the video, uh, you could see, a, you know, a well built uh, man came in. It seems like he. Uh, he approached uh, Hakeem, uh, Hakeem Cruz, the, the pimp and the boyfriend of Megan Waterman, and it almost seemed like he went in uh, to, to get money from the ATM, which he eventually headed towards and, and possibly paid Cruz. So it's a little confusing why, uh, why this man wasn't focused on a little more. So I, I've asked investigators uh, if they could if they could possibly, uh, you know, get us a little more footage on that man. I do know that there's a there's a camera in front of this place from what I hear. And I'm just hearing this from the last uh, from the last week since this is put there. And if that is the case, maybe the uh, Holiday Inn Express uh, in Hop Hog on on the expressway, uh, maybe they would they would uh, make that available to some of the people out there that are that are trying to be helpful in uh, identifying that man. Uh, because obviously that seems like the last person that might have seen Megan Waterman, which is uh, which is fascinating, and it's uh, yeah surprising that we we didn't hear that more about that man um, or or even Hakeem's name during that press conference. But again, I, I I hate to second guess what they're doing because the commissioner Rodney Harrison's doing a, a wonderful job. He's doing something right, seriously doing something and. And uh, and Ray Tierney, the DA, is uh, doing uh, serious work on this, so it's hard to second guess them. So, so this new evidence that's coming out now, and the uh, progress that seems to be being made now, do you think that it's solely due to the change in leadership, the new police commissioner Rodney Harrison, and the new DA Ray Tierney? One hundred percent. When when we started this, when we when I started doing LISC and you know, along with the producers. Uh, of my radio show, the the first series that we did, it was it was less aggressive, um, it was more informational, and and it was uh, it was going on around uh, 2016 into 2017. Uh, it, it was uh, like I said, much less aggressive, and we were giving the incoming district attorney, who we figured would be there, Tim Sinney, the benefit of the doubt, and that he would come in. He did nothing. And as it turns out, it's going to be proven that he did nothing until somewhere around August 10th of 2001. And he spent four years doing absolutely nothing. And then somewhere around that point, he he debated whether to arrest someone. I won't give the name, but there's a uh, there's there's an individual, a uh, former cop uh, that uh, that he thought about arresting. And, and I, I don't think he has anything at all to do with LISC, uh, and, and I think he was talked out of it by uh, by law enforcement, and uh, I think he was doing that, hoping to save his his election. Um, instead, uh, Tierney came in, a, a big wave, and, and plus, uh, you know, our concentration from the, um, from the, uh, the show 
uh, we, we beat up Cine on this, and we called him out, and we called out Ballone and Burke and so forth. And we made Burke was the police chief who went to prison on an unrelated, uh, unrelated issue who we've talked about before. If people don't yes, know, I'm yeah. sorry, yeah, Jim, Jimmy Burke. Uh, by the way, a book coming out by Gus uh, Garcia Roberts called Jimmy the King, and it talks about the corruption of this this police chief. And it, when when it got time to uh, election or pass the election, um, uh, Rodney Harrison came in and he was appointed, and the first syllables out of Rodney Harrison's mouth, uh, Commissioner Harrison's mouth, was Lisk. Uh, he said, the first thing I'm going to do, the top priority I'm going to concentrate on is Lisk. Now, that's a, a complete departure from where we were for 11 years or, or whatever it's been since uh, since the remains originally uh, of Shannon Gilbert were, were discovered and the Gilgo Four. And when uh, when when that happened, uh, we, we knew something was going to seriously uh, uh, change and Ray Tierney, of course, coming in, you know, about 10 days later, uh, they dove into it and they are seriously involved uh, in, in, in an investigation. Now, it's the first time uh, in, in the whole time um, since these murders were, uh, were discovered, since uh, uh, Jimmy Burke, the police chief, and, and Steve Ballone, the uh, county executive, sent the uh, FBI packing on this. And uh, now, so, uh, I, I know you've uh, been I, I know you've been critical of um, of the Suffolk County Executive Steve Ballone, and after all, he appointed the police commissioner Jim Burke, who, irrespective of the Lisk issue, turned out to be totally corrupt and literally a felon. But he also uh, appointed Rodney Harrison, who seems to have been the one one of the driving forces behind this Gilgo Beach task force. Is Ballone sort of changing his tune a little bit? Is he coming around? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think he had much of a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, originally planning on on putting that he kept that spot open and kept the police chief spot open as well and it, and it looked like he was going to keep a spot for Tim Sinney, uh in case uh, Sinny lost which of course he did um, uh, so uh, listen I, I rather than give Steve Ballone credit for his selection of uh, of uh, of Rodney Harrison which uh, let's give credit where credit is due it, it seems like it's an excellent choice. I'm going to give Rodney Harrison a, uh, um, a, a tremendous amount of credit for being his own man. Uh, he's a cop's cop from what we hear. I haven't met him, but uh, everything that he's done so far uh, has been terrific. And I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll publicly apologize for questioning uh, uh, how he was going to be. Uh, he came in, he talked about Lyft uh, immediately, uh, did a press conference, and, uh, and I'll tell you what, um, absolutely great. And and, you know, I'll pause for, for a question yet, but I also have another about face that that just uh, came uh, it came to, to my mind recently within the last several days. And I think it's a major break in the case. Hmm. Well, I, by the way, we're talking with Frank McKay. Uh, he's got a long history, which uh, if there's time, we'll, we'll, we'll touch upon uh, politics a little bit. Frank, he's also a, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host and uh, has done this incredible series of shows on the Long Island serial killer. You can check out his website at frankmckayradio.com. That's Frank, M-A-C-K-A-Y, radio.com. Been the inspiration for a lot of the content we've done on this show uh, on this subject. But, Frank, yeah, what do you think the next development in in this case will be and what other about faces might you have as related to it? Well, I'm going to I'm going to do a complete change uh, of of tune on uh, on the uh, situation or the um, the subject of John Bitroff, 
Now, John Bitroff is the carpenter, the Manaville carpenter, who is in jail, and he's been in jail since 2014 uh, for the murder of, uh, of two sex workers, where his DNA was found. Now, these are unrelated to Lisk. Now, I've been saying that, uh, that if, if, if uh, Bitroff is, uh, was Lisk, that they would have wrapped him up in, uh, in a ribbon and, and uh, you know, laid him out as, uh, as Lisk. And Tom Spoda, who, of course, was the former DA prior to Cinny, and Cinny uh, have uh, have wanting to put this behind them, uh, and and basically have have ignored it, have ignored the Gilgo Beach killings, uh, hoping that it would just go away. I don't know. I don't understand why Bitroff wasn't presented if they felt that he he was Lisk. And uh, of course, during the uh, the trial, uh, it came out well. It came out afterwards, and some of the police officers. Uh, suggested that there could be a connection to that. It was almost like a float, and uh, and they didn't dive in. Uh, now, recently, and and I think it's uh, and I'll give credit again to uh, to Ray Tierney and to uh, Rodney Harrison, uh, Commissioner Rodney Harrison and DA Ray Tierney, that uh, because of what they're doing, because of of this encouraging actions that they've uh, that they've been uh, engaging in. I'm I'm going to say that more and more people have been coming forward, and mm. I'm getting with people. And since since all of this has started to happen, I, I've gotten uh, tremendous information about Bitroff, and I'm now going because I've I've even gone as far to say that I don't even know that that Bitroff will be in jail, that he might get um, he he might get overturned on appeal. I still I, I well I, I at this point I hope he doesn't, but I think there is a possibility that. John Bitroff will eventually be tied to uh, Valerie Mack, uh, one of the uh, one of the list victims that's been identified. Um, uh, and also she's uh, she was once known as Jane Doe number six. Um, also uh, found near um, Valerie Mack was uh, was a toddler. They called her Baby Doe. Uh, she was found with gold earrings and a gold necklace. And I, I guess about 250 feet away from Valerie Mack, Baby Doe was. It turned out that Baby Doe was the child of of Peaches, uh, someone they just simply know as Peaches or Jane Doe number three, and they found her torso, um, you know, further away at, near Jones Beach, uh, but no head. Uh, mm. She was decapitated, and the three of these people um, may and and again, I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll let it develop, and I won't you know tell tales out of school, but uh, there is a possibility. There's a possibility. I'm not saying he's guilty of this, but there is a possibility that uh, Bitroff may uh, may soon be linked to those three murders. Ah. And if that happens, if that happens, there is a uh, there is a, a another uh, woman that was found near. And boy, I'm going blank on it. But uh, uh, another woman that was found near um, these uh, these three. Well, by Baby Joe and Valerie Mack. Uh, that would probably, I, I believe it's Jessica Taylor, um, that uh, that may be linked to Bitroff too. Uh, also, I, I would say that uh, one of the reasons they didn't, uh, probably now, didn't uh, tie Bitroff into all of this is because there's more than one killer. I think everyone involved in the investigation, I think, I, and again, I can't speak for the FBI, but I believe everyone from the FBI, the U.S. attorneys, to the sheriff's office, to the DA and the Suffolk County uh, police 
uh, I think they, they all basically believe at this point that there's more than Interesting. one what we've been saying all along. How, how soon do you think, uh, Frank, that there'll be a breakthrough in terms of either an additional arrest in this case or somebody being publicly identified as at least one of the likely LISC killers? I, I think something's going on now that I can't get wrap my head around and I can't wrap my, uh, uh, you know, I can't get the information on, but I think something's going on now that doesn't have to do with Bitroff. And I, I, again, I don't know what that is. I don't know what the appeal date is on, on Bitroff, but um, uh, whenever that date passes, and, and again, uh, they, they're pointing or, or people that are supportive of Bitroff, uh, believe that uh, there is a chance that he could be released uh, because of some handling of evidence or something. I, I think when that day comes and goes, um, and and if it's uh, if his appeal is not successful, uh, maybe soon after that we might hear more about Petrov and and possibly a connection to these murders. And again, I don't know that for sure. I don't have any inside information, but everything that I'm getting. Uh, as far as um, as far as circumstantial uh, evidence uh, points to that. Uh, it's certainly going to be very interesting. Now, let me tap into the political aspects of your brain for a second. Uh, you were the longtime chairman of the New York State Independence Party. That's the capacity that I first got to know you in uh, over 22 years ago. And I know you've spent the better part of your life working towards building an, uh, a vibrant independent alternative to the uh, the two-party duopoly and you've also known at least politically andrew cuomo for some time there's been some talk that andrew cuomo might actually run this year for governor as an independent or a third-party candidate uh do you put lend any credence to that knowing the independent movement as well as you do knowing andrew cuomo's political motives as well as you do what's your take on that there was a pretty heavy rumor uh, that, and and this was this was unbelievable. But I I took it seriously when it uh, when it came out of Albany that Tom Swazi, who you know is is thought to not have a, a great chance against Governor Hochul in the Democratic primary, he's a moderate uh, congressman, former county executive in Nassau County. But there was uh, there was some serious talk, uh, speculation at least that Swazi was going to complete his petition to run in that primary, drop out, drop out and and give the line to Andrew Cuomo. Now, folks who know the two men realize they they, they don't like each other. And they uh, and, and a lot of people said that'll never happen. And as it turns out, they were right. Uh, I don't know that there wasn't a uh, wasn't there it wasn't an effort by Cuomo to get Swazi's petition because he started running ads. If uh, if you remember, he started spending some of his 17 million dollars uh, on, uh, you know, on ads talking about what what he's done or how he sees uh, sees New York and the future and so forth. Uh, he, he did some serious ads and spent some bucks uh, doing that. So I think he, he thought he had a shot at Swazi. Interesting. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know that for sure. It turned out to be a, a non uh, non starter. 
but if, if he runs as an independent, you would have to believe that he's trying to peel votes away and let the Republicans win so that he can come back in four years and, and run against, you know, maybe Lee Zeldin or, or you know, one of Harry Wilson, Andrew Giuliani or, uh, or you know, Astorino, if uh, Astorino has any chance. But do you think, no, knowing Cuomo's political moves as you do, I mean, uh, he's run third party before as a name on the ballot with the Liberal Party in tw- 2002, but he didn't campaign actively. Do you think that's something that he would do? Do you think he'd risk handing the governor's mansion to the Republicans and damaging potentially his own reputation further in Democratic circles in order to come back and 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 try and take back the office in four years. Well, you and I both know that the uh, that the idea of running an independent has more to do with uh, affecting an election and has to do with establishing a a third party mm. in, uh, in the state. And and we got knocked off. The Independence Party lost ballot status in 2020 when they changed the laws and 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 the presidential candidate we had Brock Pierce uh you know failed uh to get the uh, 130,000 votes or whatever the margin is now whatever the threshold is now uh Andrew Cuomo if he runs as an independent uh may may try to uh, establish a minor party line or if he puts somebody up to run as an independent and, and tries to get to that threshold, he may try to affect um, some kind of change by uh, by utilizing that third party line. Uh, I don't I don't know. I don't even know that he's doing the petition. I imagine we're going to find out soon. Uh, it's it's a lot of signatures and it's a oh, lot yeah. of signatures because of him and uh, and Jay Jacob, uh, Jay Jacobs wanting to get rid of the working families and, and Jacobs wanting to get rid of the Independence Party. Um, they up the. <laughs> They upped the number uh, to uh, to you know fifty thousand, I think it is, or something. So you got to figure this. Uh, you'd have to get you know seventy five thousand to hope to get fifty thousand good ones, and you need I think twenty three um, twenty three congressional districts have to be represented with a certain amount of signatures. It's a difficult task to do, and. Uh, the irony is right now they would love to get Brian Benjamin off, right? And I don't know the latest on Brian Benjamin. Uh, the Democrats would love to, to clear him. And the way they could have cleared him is through an independent line, nominating him for maybe uh, a senator or, or, or governor and allow uh, a new lieutenant governor to take the place mm. of, of Benjamin. And the irony is that the the Dems who did that now are de- de- uh, who wiped us out um, try to prevent us. Right from now they have out. to deal with the same forty five thousand signatures they screwed us with. Right, exactly. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Number is it, it twenty five thousand? No, forty five thousand. You yeah, forty five thousand. Right. Wow, it's a, it's an enormous number, and and it's uh, you know maybe poetic justice that exactly. They can't get off. Exactly. Hey, lastly, Frank, uh, on this subject. Uh, are you um, are you optimistic at all about the future of the independent political movement? There's been some rumblings in some quarters on the left, on the right, in the center. Uh, you hear, uh, Andrew Yang made a big deal about starting the Forward Party. They don't seem to be doing much in New York yet. Uh, I've invited him on this show. He hasn't come on to talk about whatever they're doing in New York. Uh, and uh, even nationally, you hear some things from time to time. But it doesn't seem like there's anything uh, that is anywhere close to the Perot movement in the 90s or even the Nader Green Party movement in the early 2000s. Are you optimistic that there will be uh, an independent political movement in the near foreseeable future? Well, what I did 
is uh, is as of January 1st, I made sure I resigned as chair of the Independence Party. I still had part of a two-year term um, uh, to serve out. And after talking to uh, different folks in, in in the Independence Party and then around uh, the folks that didn't re-register in, uh, into other parties, I let them know that I think it's uh, it, they have a better opportunity to uh, to go if, uh, if it's fresh blood. So I, I think there's some kind of movement there. I'll let them speak for themselves. But uh, Jay Jacobs is, is completely uh, against me. And, and I think uh, the Independence Party, if they're going to reestablish ballot status, uh, are better off without me, quite frankly, because uh, Jacobs or maybe uh, Jimmy Scoofus, uh, who wanted to change the name uh, or, or wanted uh, to eliminate the name Independence from being used. At this point, I think, um, uh, it, you know, like the best thing I could have done for uh, for New York in the year 2022 uh, and for any movement to get back on the line is to resign, quite frankly. So I uh, I, I did that and I'm, I'm happy to be out of it uh, as far as uh, being optimistic. Ask me when the when the petitions are in and if they if they qualify a petition and they have a gubernatorial candidate up top that has the opportunity to get to the threshold uh then you know then i'll certainly uh you know say i'm more optimistic but until those numbers are in mm. it's very hard to speculate it's, it's a difficult threshold that they set up well frank it is always a treat talking with you hopefully we can do this again soon thank you for the update on this uh, long island serial serial killer and uh, i'm hoping that uh, we get an arrest or at least a uh, public acknowledgement of the suspect or suspects sometime soon and thanks for the great work that you've been doing on this thanks for having me frank thank you frank mckay uh, if you want to check out some of the work that he's done on radio you can go to frank mckayradio.com that's m-a-c-k-a-y you want to comment on anything he said here either on the political front or on the uh, long island serial killer give me a call 1-800-848-9222 that's 1-800-848-wabc this is the other side of midnight straight ahead talk radio 77 wabc we are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Midnight at the Oasis. Send your camel to bed. Shadows painting our faces. Romance in our hands Heaven's holding a half moon Shining just for us Let's slip off to a sand Real soon Kick up a little Oasis, Maria Moldar. It's a few minutes past, well, a few hours past midnight. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. All right. Uh, we're going to get to your calls in just a minute. 800-848-9222. Still to come, we've got Tony Lobianco. And uh, evidently, Molly has made a cake. We'll find out why in uh, just a few minutes. But um, we'll – and I'll take your calls, those of you that are holding. You want to get through, there's six open lines, so you can get through at 800-848-9222. Now, I did mention that uh, yesterday at noon, 
the ratings came out, and I said that I was a little nervous. And it's not because there's been any kind of decline in the quality of the show or anything, in my view. It's just because the ratings have been so good for so long, I almost feel like, how long can this continue? I mean, it's just, they've been just stellar. So, the ratings came out at noon yesterday. They're through the roof. They're through the roof. Not only for um, this show, but for the whole station. The whole station. We're killing it. Absolutely killing it. In fact, there's a uh, there's a post on the New York Radio message board, and one guy writes, probably their highest ratings since the Bob Grant days, 3.8 overall. WOR is way behind. And um, then a user by the name of Sid comments the following. Look at the morning show's ratings for months, months now. No one on this board ever has anything nice to say about Bernie and Sid. Time to wake up and admit a lot of you are dead wrong about us! Exclamation point. So clearly, while that person only signed his name Sid, that's clearly Sid Rosenberg. I'm insane. (laughs) Why he engages with these knuckleheads on the New York Radio message board, I don't understand it. But congratulations. I didn't see the morning show numbers, but I, I saw the uh, the overall station numbers, and they were great. Now, let's talk about this program. Um, in the category, of, basically the 12-plus category, I'll spare you a lot of jargon, but it's basically all everybody that's listening over the age of 12, we killed it. We did. Wow, wow, wow. We have, we've done a 21 share, a 21 share. Now, what that means is that essentially one out of every five radios, more that's on right now in the New York area, New York metro area, is tuned to this station. One out of every wow. five. Our nearest competitor is 1010 Wins. We did double, double. What they've done, and in the average rating number, we did a point two, a point two, which is very difficult to do in the overnight hours. Now, a lot of people always say, well, what about this group? What about that demo? Now, in the category of men, 3564, which is always a category that we struggle with on this show because we appeal to women, we appeal to older folks, we appeal to everybody, which I like. I, I just like people that are living and listening. In Men 3564, we're tied for number one in that category, too. Spectacular. Now, think of that. With everything that was going on in March, the drama over the baseball season, uh, the football, everything, the NBA, the run-up to the playoffs, we're tied with the fan in Men 3564. I'm the man. <laughs> so a, a, a 9.8 share in men 3564. Now, that's incredible. So big thank you to everybody that has made this possible. And I haven't seen all the numbers yet. I imagine we'll go through them Friday at our uh, at our meeting. But uh, Dominic, also number one in his time slot, and Rita Cosby, also number one in her time slot as well. So congratulations to the whole station and everybody that made this uh, ratings book possible. So let the church say Amen. So we get to uh, we get to live to fight another day. So I can relax for another month because if the ratings ever go down, 
even slightly, then you have all sorts of people that want to tweak what you're doing, right? They say, well, well, the reason that you went from a 12 share to an 11 share is you're not doing enough of this, or you're not giving the time enough, or you're not giving the temperature enough, or you're not doing enough traffic, or you're not helping people out of traffic jams. Everyone's got their own two cents, but since the ratings keep going up, this is their highest number ever on this show, then uh, I guess we, we, I, I don't expect that we're going to be told to change anything. 800-848-9222. Deborah in Fort Lee. Hello. Yes, hi, Frank. Um, Maria Mogari, did you know that she's a godmother to one of Meatloaf's daughters? No, I didn't know that. Yes, wow. Yes, she is, and she is a great Her is a singer now. Her name is Jenny. What, me, that's Meatloaf's daughter or her daughter? No, no, no. Maria Mogari's daughter is a singer. But also, she has some really good songs. One of her songs is called Don't You Feel My Leg, Don't You Feel My Thigh. It's I, a great song. I've actually heard that song. It, it, it is, is a great song. It, yeah. it is quite, it's quite good. It's from the 70s, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and Walking One and Only. Deborah, thank you. Yes, I'm yes. out of time here. Those of you that are holding, we'll get to you after the top of the hour. Uh, we'll do a, a soda taste test of some sort coming up in a minute. And uh, Tony LoBianco is here. That's going to be fun. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. Uh, it's no secret that um, we are living in a streaming world to some extent. Uh, Molly's here. Molly, how many streaming services do you and your longtime companion have? Waiting for Matt to turn on my mic. There yeah, we go. I believe it. Now you know how I feel. <laughs> See, sitting here, you guys get you a new appreciation. Mic on. I know, but w- while someone is struggling to speak into a microphone that just doesn't seem to want to be turned on and turned up, you could see now how frustrating well, usually, that is. usually blah, the frustration blah, blah, blah. is blah, blah, blah. coming from me. Yes. Um, That's a direct quote from me. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, tell me That's about it. That's what I sound like to Frank, I'm sure. <laughs> um, how many streaming services? Uh, HBO, Hulu, uh, YouTube TV. Do you pay uh, for that? YouTube TV? I don't. I don't pay for well, it. Well, I know, but does somebody in your household pay for it? I don't think even in my household. I think that I think that's an extended family find. All right, so that's find. three. three. Uh, Spotify, Title. What is Title? I never even that's, heard of that. That's uh, Jay Z, right? You yeah, don't have Netflix. Uh, no, oh, yeah, we have we have Netflix, but my mom pays for that one. I see. All right, it's it's kind of hard to. S- I pay for the HBO. He pays for the Hulu. I pay for. We have our own Spotify accounts. He has the Title account, but. Uh, would you count Adobe as a subscription service? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, Matt Blaze, what about you? About how many streaming services do you Besides have? Besides regular cable, which right. I do have. Me too. 
Hulu, uh, YouTube Premium. You got that. You have to pay for it, right? Yeah, because the premium and the title. premium. So I don't have to watch ads on YouTube. So YouTube Premium, um, Peacock I get for free. How yeah. do you get it for free? How do you pull that? It's off? with the cable company. Oh, it's part of. This I see. Okay. Uh, Netflix, uh, Prime Video, uh, Apple Music. Apple. Okay, so I am just about. So I have. Netflix. I have Peacock. I'm on my brother's account for that, the souped-up one, so I can watch the wrestling. I have um, Hulu. Well, Rachel has Hulu. I have Amazon Prime, and uh, I, I feel like I have three or four others that I'm I'm forgetting. There's a, a bunch of others. As now, soon as you started listing streaming services, I realized that I have access to at least three more yeah, of those. Uh, so so the, uh, the list goes on. I, right. Uh, the, the Paramount Plus, that's where I'm watching Picard. There's just too many. There's too many. And like any bubble that is being blown up, yesterday could have been a pivotal day in the streaming bubble. Now, I want you to understand, those of us that grew up in an era of three channels, and then that became an era of 57 channels and nothing on, and then it became an era of 2,000 channels, and now we're in an era of just being able to speak into your microphone on your on your remote control and pull up whatever you want to watch this is a new age we've seen the streamers including the company, the platforms i just mentioned dominate yesterday was a banner day because for the first time in history netflix announced that they lost subscribers they lost subscribers for the first time in more than 10 years their shares cratered 25%. That's streamer story number one. Uh, streamer story number two. Now, they're still more valuable than Disney. Still more value. And think about that. Think of all the people Disney has hired all over the world. Uh, all the theme parks, the people making the movies, the this, the that. Netflix is more valuable and has more money than Disney. Apple, same thing. John Stewart. Um, is also struggling in terms of getting something going on his streaming platform. The streamers have owned these award shows. The Oscars this year dominated by Netflix and everything else. And really, so many of the good shows, it seems like, are on these streaming networks. The Jon Stewart TV show, now you got to understand, Jon Stewart for 16, 17 years was the most popular thing on cable television. Um, and he was dominant, dominant on The Daily Show. His Apple TV Plus show, the problem with Jon Stewart, has turned out to be quite problematic. It debuted in September. It has failed to gain traction in its first season, and it's lagging far behind its competitors on broadcast and on cable TV. Last fall... About 180,000 U.S. homes saw the show's first episode within the first seven days. By the fifth episode, which aired in early March, it was down to only about 40,000 homes tuning in. Down 78% from the season premiere. Now, by comparison, an episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, just sort of a similar format, was seen by 844,000 homes. So John Stewart... The most watched guy on cable when it comes to that format, he's not able to gain traction on streaming. Lastly, this is all news that's breaking this week on the streaming front. 
Warner Brothers and Discovery have suspended all external marketing money for CNN+. Plus. They've now laid off CNN's chief financial officer as they are weighing what to do with this CNN Plus streaming service. That's the one that Chris Wallace went to. I passed a big old billboard of it here in Manhattan the other day. Now, inside CNN, it's being reported that executives think the launch has been successful. Discovery executives, which just merged with CNN, disagree. CNN Plus has about 150,000 subscribers so far. Warner Brothers and Discovery want to eventually build one giant service around HBO Max. So new leadership has replaced the CNN CFO and uh, other high-level positions at Warner Media are are in a state of flux. Sources say a plan's being considered to replace Chris Cuomo's program on regular CNN with a live newscast instead of a personality-driven perspective. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be interesting. So CNN's original plan was for CNN Plus to become profitable in four years by investing a billion dollars into the service. Imagine that, a billion dollars. A profitable streaming service would have diversified CNN's revenue long-term around a digital asset. Everybody wants that now, digital asset. CNN Plus announced uh, launched on Roku last week. It should have prompted a subscription boost, but with marketing, marketing now sur- suspended around the service, there are concerns that growth is going to be short-lived, and this point of pride among CNN staffers is how smoothly the app has been working technologically, but apparently no one's watching. And there's 150,000 subscribers. That's well short of expectations. And executives believe that the service wasn't being kneecapped. Its growth rate would rival other outlets like the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, which have about 2.9 million subscribers. But the analogy that some are arguing is that that assumes customers would get the same product on CNN Plus that they do with CNN's linear channel, that's not the case. Internal data is showing that the shows that do well on TV are, um, you know, are shows that have um, a, a, that mimic other TV programs, like uh, Re- Reliable Sources Daily with Brian Selter, Stelter, or Five Things with Kate Baldwin. So it's very uh, interesting to see. I'm curious what you think if you think this streaming bubble is about to burst. Because remember, we've seen this before with other forms of technology. Remember what a big thing MoviePass was, that app where you could pay a fee and see as many movies as you wanted? It blew up. didn't work. Is this the beginning of the end for the dominance of the streamers? Or have people's viewing habits so changed over the years that there's no changing it now? 800-848-WABC. Tell me what you think about that. 800-848-922. Also... Um, I, I saw a little bit of this video. We're not going to play the audio because it's a little tough to hear of Bill O'Reilly in this confrontation at uh, an airport worker at JFK uh, airport. He was trying to get a flight to Turks and Caicos and it was delayed about three hours. And this JetBlue worker and Bill O'Reilly get into a very heated discussion. And O'Reilly says a lot of the uh, Twitter commentary on it is taking him out of context and ignoring the real story, 
which is that there was this jet blue guy who misled passengers during this five hour delay. So and he apparently commented on it. I didn't hear his show last night. I got in a little later. So I uh, I didn't hear what he had to say on this. But I would just say two things. One, on the streaming and digital uh, entertainment and information platform, Bill O'Reilly's been doing very well at BillOReilly.com. He told me that his first year of the pandemic, he made more money on BillOReilly.com than he had in something like the previous five years. So it was a big, big thing for him. And I think... The lesson that Jon Stewart can learn, ironically, from Bill O'Reilly is that content really is king. That if you have quality content, especially if you already have a name like Jon Stewart does and O'Reilly does, it's different if I start launching a streaming channel that nobody nobody really knows who I am nationally, at least not to the extent that Jon Stewart or Bill O'Reilly do uh, are known, that if you put out a quality product, eventually it will take off. Viewers will find you. And I think I haven't I haven't seen the John Stewart show that he's doing, so I can't say that it's not a quality product. But I guess people think they can get enough of that same kind of show for free. And it's always what I've said is that if you have a successful show, you should never leave, because when you try and relaunch, when you catch try and catch lightning in a bottle twice, it doesn't always work. Sometimes it does, sometimes it does. Very rare, very rare. Uh, so 800-848-WABC, if you want to comment on the streaming wars, is Netflix the new movie pass or is there, are they still going to be just as dominant and the new NBC, the new CBS, the new ABC as they've been for the next, um, you know, for the next few years. Now, Molly, you baked a cake today. I did. And, um, what kind of cake was it? it so it's a banana cake and then the, uh, t- icing is a caramel coconut pecan oh. did you try place. this cake matt i did it's very good all right you don't you're not you don't sound that enthused about it I mean. I'm, I'm a cake critic but i mean it was good I, I i liked it i'm not a it has a little coconut in it and i'm not a coconut uh, fan. I see. okay now we're getting to but the i truth. still like okay it. it doesn't sound like you like he's it. not a no, coconut right. fan but he's sure a coconut like that's <laughs> that's true <laughs> um, i did like it now it, i more banana now what made you choose to bake a cake instead of a pie Pie doesn't come in a box. What do you mean? Pie doesn't come in a box. You can bake a cake out of a box. Oh, so you used like a, a, a cake mixture. Mix, yeah. I see. Okay. I, I don't buy into the cake out of a box isn't cake. I put eggs in it. Okay. I mix the stuff. I had to remember the oven was on more than once. And you maintain pies don't have that same ease. Pies have way more involvement okay. fair enough fair i mean enough. i guess you can get a boxed crust but... i i didn't try one yet uh i wanted some of the cake because i'm trying to lay off carbs because i'm rapidly putting on all the weight that i took off for lent and i'm trying not to do it all in one week but i heard before the show anyway that you didn't even try the cake i, I, I still have i actually brought two little pieces for us to try it oh, together here all right, well figured... maybe we'll, maybe we'll do that now i'd have to go get it but we um, have other things to try yeah, that's you caught why my attention a lot of things to try. when i came in today and there was a sticker on a soda bottle for something called Coca-Cola Starlight Limited Edition Creations. And um, and it looks very interesting. I can't help but notice this company, Coca-Cola, which is not a sponsor. Uh, they had no problem doing away with one of my favorite sodas, Tab, because apparently they didn't have the resources to keep manufacturing Tab. But they still are putting out new products. This 
Starlight Limited Edition Coca-Cola is evidently space-flavored. No idea what that means. No idea. So are we going to try some? Of course. Okay. So what space, you... space is just often talked about here, so we might as well know what it That's tastes right, like. That's including today. All right. Now, um, I, uh, I, I don't generally drink a lot of soda. I'm trying to stay away from caffeine and carbonation and sugar right now. So soda has all three. But it I'll, absolutely I'll looks like cough syrup. Why is Ooh, it so red? It smells weird. It smells like uh, interesting bouquet. It smells like. Okay. Yeah, it smells like bubblegum almost. I think it smells like bubblegum. I'm getting some ginger snap. I could see that, actually. Yeah. That's better. There's some vanilla. Should um, we go in? Okay, Matt's go. already drinking it. What do you think, Matt? It's terrible. You don't like it? No. Let's try it now. Now I want to like it. Let's see. Kind of mm. like cream soda, but cherry. It's like drinking Christmas. It, you know, that's a good description. It tastes like drinking... It almost tastes like a cinnamon soda. Yeah, it does like taste like a cinnamon and nutmeg. Right. It tastes like a scented candle. Yeah, nutmeg. That's right. With like a, a nutmeg, right. A, um, a, a gingerbread candle. Right. It tastes like you're drinking a gingerbread candle. I think I like exactly. it. Yeah. All right. Well, I, you... I like the, the slight wax aftertaste. There you have it. Um, okay. Well, now not, we know what space tastes like. I don't think space tastes like that. Gingerbread I, candle. M- maybe that's what the North Pole tastes like, but. Uh, all right, we're going to do the uh, $1,000 Minute in just a minute. And we still got still to come. We have Tony LoBianco. Thank you for your efforts today. That's uh, well a job well done, Molly. Uh, Sean is in New Jersey, though. Hello, Sean. Hey, uh, I have a pretty good analogy regarding the um, cable channels mm-hmm. and all that. Uh, just bear with me for a sec. Um, I feel like there's so many choices out there. And actually, I just saw this. Uh, I was talking to a friend about this earlier today. And a lot of people say, hey, look, you know, I can do Hulu, Sling, this, that. And then they realize, you know what, I got so many choices, I don't even know what I want to do. Maybe I'm just going to go back to Verizon and I'm going to stick with that. So my analogy, along with what you were just talking about regarding food, is if you went into an ice cream parlor and there's about 100 different flavors, you might say, oh, maybe I'll try them. But then you think, you know what? Give me vanilla. Give me chocolate. Give that, me strawberries. Sean, that is so interesting, and the way you put it is so interesting. So it sounds like what you think is maybe these streaming channels are not the future of entertainment. Maybe people will go back to conventional cable and regular broadcast TV. Yeah, well, what the problem is you're not getting what you want. So, you know, you have a lot of different, uh, you know, channels that you might get, but then you have to sacrifice something that you really don't want to sacrifice and you don't want to, you know, throw all kinds of money at it either. So um, there's, you know, I think you're right. I don't think it's really going to last the way it is. Interesting. Interesting, Sean. Great observation. Thank you. And what I was going to say on the O'Reilly front, and uh, I think he's coming on this show in a week or two uh, to, uh, because he, I think, is also number one. And so all us number one people like to hang around with one another. And um, he sent me a couple of copies of his newest book, Killing the Killers. Now, I'm going to try and read it, but I have one copy that I can give away. And I've decided that a lot of the key to the future of this show's success, it, you see it with the woman, the, the fellow that's running against Lauren Boebert in Colorado is trying to run for Congress basically by becoming a social media star. So I think... I, in order to get this audience to keep growing, and we've grown significantly, 
I think I have to become like a social media star on the level of a, an O'Reilly or a Ben Shapiro or whatever else. So whoever emails me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com or Facebook messages me at facebook.com slash moranofan or finds me on Twitter at Frank Morano with the best suggestion for how I can become a social media star. And it's got to be something easy to implement, like do a video from a dunk tank. It can't be do a video from the moon or something. Whoever emails me with the best suggestion on how to become a social media star, I will determine within the next week, and I'll give you a copy of of Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing the Killers. Um, Seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. It's 1-800-848-9222. We're going to give you an opportunity to play the $1,000 minute. Seventh caller right now if you want to try and answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. While we're waiting for those callers to queue up, Janet in Manhattan, hello. Oh, hi. Yes, a couple of things. First of all, uh, the reference that you made with your guest from the Independence Party, I don't know who that was. I tuned in late. Um, right, Frank McKay, yes. Frank McKay, okay. You made some reference to the 45,000 signatures, and I'm not sure what that reference was. That's to get on when, the ballot as an independent that, have, candidate for governor. Say that again? That's to get on the ballot as an independent candidate for governor. Oh, okay. 45,000 signatures. Okay, I wanted to get a message to John Casamitidis. I, I called in once when he was on with Sid, Sid and Bernie, Bernie and Sid, and he doesn't take phone calls. I noticed that. I noticed that they didn't take any phone calls that day. Uh, he doesn't like to talk to the public, I, I think, John Casamitidis. He doesn't work that way. But I wanted to ask him something. I love the way he – by the way, c- congratulations to you on the, on the ratings. Thank you. And I, I love the way he, you know, does special programming for certain days, you know, St. Patrick's Day and, and, and Israeli Independence Day and Greek Independence Day. There's another Greek holiday that I wanted to ask him about, if he would consider doing, well, at least an hour maybe on that day to celebrate. There's a Greek holiday. Well, I'm just called a holiday. I guess it is. It's called Ohi Day. Have you ever heard of it? Ohi Day? Yeah. No, I, I'll ask him about it, and I'm going to be with uh, another Greek gentleman uh, a little bit later today named Stavros. I'll ask him about it as well. Uh, I'm not familiar with it, we will, but, and he's probably listening right now. John is probably listening right now. He's always listening. So we will uh, we will run that up the flagpole to him as well. Uh, all right. Uh, Big Julie, very quickly here before we get to the $1,000 minute. Hello. Listen, Frankie, I wanted to comment on the school teacher. You know, I was on, uh, uh, on, on you, let me have you hold them because we have to get to Tony Lobianco. Um, because, and it is time for The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Now let's meet our contestant, Bob in Columbus. Bob, are you calling from Ohio, the Buckeye State? Absolutely. Wonderful. Right thank, in the middle. Thanks for uh, thanks for calling in. Thanks for listening. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for broadcasting. You're welcome. Now, um, this contest is pretty simple. Ten trivia questions. You're going to have 60 seconds to answer them. The timer is going to start after I ask the first question. If you get a question right, I'm just going to move on to the next one so that we can go through all, all ten of them in 60 seconds. You ready to go? I am with the realization that it might be a complete miracle of God if I get through all ten. No, well, well fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right. What vegetable is the basis of a pickle? Cucumber. 
What is the legal drinking age in every U.S. state? 18. What state is known as the Sunshine State? Oh, wait, you said 18? No, it's not 18. It's 21. Well, it used to be 18 back right, but, when I was 18. But, but unless you're calling, you know, unless you're doing the show via a time machine, it's now, you know, 2022. It's been 20, 21 years of age since 2002. So, I mean, it's been 19 years that it's been at, yeah, it's yeah, 21. I should have, I should have, uh, should have recognized All right, that. I, you had me fooled. Thankfully, we had Matt Blaze eagle-eared here, and um, he caught, caught you. Bob, hang on. Thanks for playing. We're going to give your information to, uh, to Molly. We're going to send you a consolation prize to wear out there in Ohio. Meantime, Tony LaBianco is here. He's going to be making an appearance in our area soon. You could see him. Uh, the star of The French Connection, the star of a lot of great films and television shows and theatrical productions, one of my favorite actors, and a great American patriot. He'll join us straight ahead. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. This is the other side of midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. You know, there are a lot of great actors throughout the history of stage, throughout the history of television, throughout the history of cinema. But there are not necessarily a lot of great actors that can make you believe that they are the very role that they're playing. There's even fewer great actors who can do it in roles as diverse as a boxer, a mayor, a police officer, a gangster. But when it comes to Tony Lobianco, when I'm watching him, I'm not watching Tony Lobianco play a character as I am with so many other actors. I am watching Fiorello LaGuardia or any other character that Tony has played over the years. He's one of my favorites, longtime actor, stage, cinema television, you name it. And he's even uh, as great as he is as an actor. He's even greater of an American patriot. And I'm thrilled that he's agreed to get up early with us this morning. Tony, it is great to talk with you again. How have you been? I'm just great. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say those wonderful things. I appreciate it very much. Uh, Thank you. It's uh, certainly true. Uh, Tony, I, I guess the role that so many people know you from is uh, is the French Connection. I mean, there's a lot of great roles that people know you from. But I'm wondering if you can explain what a career changer that was for you, uh, how that role uh, changed your life and your career from that point on. Well, that's the, yeah, that, that did it all right. I'll tell you. Um, it's fascinating. Um, the first movie I did was the Honeymoon Killers, and and that was a uh, you know the way I got that role uh, is relevant to the French Connection because uh, I got that role. It was a tr- it's a true story, the uh, the movie, and uh, when I was uh, I had a theater in uh, in New York called the Triangle Theater. And I, I, I had an actress, a friend, and, and she said, uh, listen, there's a movie being done. You should go up for it. I think you're, you're right for it and right for it. So when I called, the woman said, well, well, no, how, how old are you? I said, I, I don't know, I'm 30. And she said, no, 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 the character's 46, and he's, he has to have a Spanish accent and so on and so forth. And so, well, and he said, uh, you know, anyway, you're wrong for it. 
So the, as time went on, uh, the, the, the actress friend of mine said, you know, you should really go up. It's a, uh, you're really good for, right for that role. You, I, I know, I know you can play those things, anything, anything you want. So I went up and the woman said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I said, what do you want? She said, I told you, I need a, I said, just a minute. I turned it in my chair, put my hand on my hair, pulled it back, spoke to her in a Spanish accent. And she said, oh my God, oh my God. Oh, I'll send you right in to the producers. So I went in, spoke to them only with the accent, got the part and continued to speak to them with the accent. And then she, they asked me to read, you know, for the, the other actresses, the, the, the lead actress I did. And then at one point the producer said, you know, he, he, we, maybe we can send him to school to, to learn how to speak English a little better. So uh, the, the, the casting woman said, this, I got to tell you, he doesn't have an accent. And she said, Tony, speak to us without the accent. I said, no, sir, not until I signed the contract. And so I never did speak to them without the accent until I signed the contract. Now, as a result of that, uh, when Phil D'Antoni, uh, the producer of French Connection, and William Friedkin, the director, was one of their favorite films. And they, were, they watched the film, and one of them said, let's get him. Let's get him to play Sal Boca. And the other one said, no, what you got an accent? He's just a Spanish accent. And the casting person said, no, no, he's a New York actor. He doesn't have an accent. He's just putting it on. And that's how I got that part. So it's a very strange thing. And, and, and doing the French Connection was, and I made friends with the, the great Sonny Grasso, mm. who was one of the original cops. That's the role that my good friend Roy Scheider played. And uh, and uh, he was, he, Sonny and I became the best of friends. And and that movie was shot because of the relationships between uh, the the actors and the and the feeling with with the the producer and the and and Sonny and and William Freakin and the fact that they were daredevils in shooting that movie they didn't have permits and they had and they had they were and they were just shooting because they had the police with them of course and they were shooting here and there and so on and so forth and billy freaknet was uh had he had the you know blood uh, steel in his veins so uh and, and his young man he's 30 i think it was in his early early 30s 32 33 in shooting that movie and we had no money either it was a difficult it was a difficult mo- a movie to get on i think we had about a million and a half bucks to shoot that movie and uh and the idea of of uh uh, uh each day was an adventure and uh and everything everything was fa- fabulous because they didn't want gene hackman okay because gene hackman was sort of a midwestern kind of thing and then you know, he, Gene Hackman is a great, brilliant actor, as everybody knows. And uh, they, didn't, they didn't want him. Uh, but finally, uh, because he he, uh, he couldn't he couldn't do the uh, or, or the uh, New York stuff. Uh, you know, he throwing people against the wall. This is 1970, and uh, and uh, getting getting answers and being a little rougher uh, and getting the the, the the truth out from from the criminals and uh, people were, were coddled back then and uh, so he finally worked into it and they took him around and showed him the work took him up to harlem and took him to different places where where all the action was 
And the idea, I mean, I, I, I hung out with the police. I rode with them. I, I, listen, my first, my first day riding with the cops, I was, I was the fourth man in the car. And we got a call that, that a, somebody was shot dead on the top floor up in Harlem. And when we went up Sunny Grasso and myself were, were going up the stairs, there was a guy standing on the, sitting on the, on the steps with a needle in his arm and the bubble in his arm was just about to burst. Mm. Yeah, it was a drug situation. Sonny just came by, just pulled the needle out, saved the guy's life. We went up the stairs, went up to the top floor. The top of the building was blown off. Uh, or the, uh, and and the uh, we went in the back, and there was a cop uh, guarding a dead body. And uh, it turns out that the cop's brother was just shot dead a week ago. And, and, and when we left that place... We went to another place there was because there was a call in, the, in an alleyway of a woman being shot to death. And while we were looking at that scene, somebody jumped off the roof and committed suicide. Oh, my goodness. People don't even know what what goes on in a day in a policeman's life. And shooting that, shooting, shooting, and those, that was just the first day. And I went out with them. I was on rapes. I was on the kidnapping. Kid, kid, Kidnapping, uh, you can name it. I, I I hung out with the police a great deal and went on. I listen. One time, I got a call. A guy said, "You got to come up here." One of the cops said, "I said what?" He said, "I've got a guy who stole a stolen car in front of a police station." The guy stole a stolen car in front of a, a police station. <laughs> so I went up there and uh, they, they questioned him and questioned him. And I said, "Listen, let me question him." So I went in. I questioned the guy. And I got a murder uh, confession out of him. He said, he said, he said, he said, uh, uh, somebody stole a tire off his car. He went, he went home, got himself a gun and shot the guy. And he also told me his mother was a, 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 a police officer, lieutenant in the Macy's for Macy's. I mean, I mean, it's that kind of, that kind of hell does not, live in Gene Hackman's life, you understand? So that kind of grit, that kind of stuff that, that he had to get into and learn and understand the, understand that, that, that culture, which he did, obviously, brilliantly. Oh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the greatest of all time, as far as I'm concerned. You know, you, you really surprised me, and I've seen the film a bunch of times. And uh, yeah. with people, if people are, are tuning in, we're talking with Tony Lobianco. We're going to tell you how you can see Tony in person in a couple of weeks in our area. And it's uh, something you're going to want to pay attention to, particularly if you're a fan of the French Connection. But you really surprised me because when we talk about the French Connection, other than the great acting in that film, yourself, Gene Hackman, Roy Scheider, one of the first things that people think of is that that incredible car chase scene. So when you t- I don't I, I think when people think of the French Connection and that car chase scene, we don't necessarily think of a film that was shot uh, as a low budget film or a film that was shot with no permits. Uh, you really blew me away on that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a raw. A raw situation. Billy was a daredevil, and so was uh, Bill Hickman, the stunt driver. And uh, and and the fact that Bill Hickman uh, and Phil Phil D'Antoni, the producer of both Bullet, the uh, uh, French Connection, and Seven Ups, 
those three movies, and of course, I, I'm grateful to be, have been in both both Seven Ups and French Connection. But the, the Bullet was a, a Steve McQueen that had the same stuntman, Bill Hickman, and those three car chases were, were all by the same producer and the same stuntman. And uh, yeah, so it's just it's a different time and different people uh, than, than we have now. Mm. Uh, it's a different it's a different world we're living in. Living in now, as you as you can, everybody knows, uh, we are we were uh, uh, I don't know we were rough. We were rough. We were we were daring, and and uh, we did we did good movies in the seventies, and uh, and uh, so things have things have changed now. You know the the thing in Staten the Staten Island Staten Island on, on May first. I know you want to talk about sure. that, and so do I. Uh, we're having uh, May first at the, the St. George Theater which is at 35 Hyatt Street, Staten Island. Uh, they're showing the special viewing of the French Connection for its 50th year celebration, 50 years celebration. And I'm, they've invited me to do a Q&A and to greet and meet uh, people. And, uh, and so uh, that, that's about, the, I think the doors open about 5 o'clock and, uh, yeah, you can get a ticket right at the door. It's like a movie. Yeah, movie it, uh, so let me again tell folks, this is uh, May 1st, doors open at 5 p.m. This is at uh, the St. George Theater, one of the most beautiful theaters you've ever been to. I- I've uh, mm. seen a number of performances there and a number of screenings there. It never ceases to impress me. And it's uh, $20 if, you, if, you wanna, if you're if you not a member of the St. George Theater, $15 if you are. If people want to buy tickets in advance, they can go to St. George theater.com that's st george theater.com it's a screening of the film for the 50th anniversary i think it holds up just as well today as it did 50 years ago and it includes not only a q a with uh, tony lobianco but a meet and greet after the movie with tony lobianco it uh, should be a lot of fun a- as you alluded to it is based on a a true story the french connection not only uh not only the the story of sonny grasso but his uh, his partner Eddie Egan. You know, it's funny. We were we were taking calls recently on the air about um, different unsolved mysteries throughout history, and more than one listener mentioned the case, the true case behind the French Connection. I'm curious, it, it being so associated with this film for the past half century, have you developed any theories as to what happened in that real life case, that real life French Connection case? You mean about the missing drug? Yes. Yeah, I know. I I really have no no evidence, no uh, uh, concrete knowledge of uh, what's happened. Uh, and and I've been close to a lot of people in that movie, and I have no idea uh, because of the drugs. It's fascinating. I, I, the drugs have been get uh, taken in and out of the property clerk's office uh, and when they when they're people people are are. Uh, uh, Showing it, they come in and tell a story. They take the, the drugs out and they, they display them and so on. And they bring them back and they sign in and sign out. And maybe sometime, one time, uh, somebody uh, substituted some other powder for the drugs, and they were missing. And just regular powder was in there. And so nobody knows quite who did it. You know what went on. You know, yeah. No, it's uh, something that can. I don't know that will ever 
get to the bottom of. Now, uh, you've yeah. played uh, you've played mobsters, cops, boxers. M- one of my favorite roles that I've seen you perform in, and I think I've seen you in at least two different versions of this performance, is that of former New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. You've played him in His yeah. Honor. You've played him in Fiorello. Uh, you've played him in The Little Flower. It seems like uh, you have sort of a, a special relationship with the character of LaGuardia, more so than in almost any character I've ever seen you play, and I've paid attention to your work for a long time. What do you think it is about LaGuardia that causes you to, uh, I don't know, resonate with him so closely? Well, I'm I'm always in, interested in history and the truth, and and in and in terms of of accomplishment of uh, people that are that are to be admired for for things that he that were, were done keep in mind when he when he uh, when they built the LaGuardia airport it was built it was started in in uh, 1937 and finished in 1939 two years can you imagine <laughs> Imagine Billy we can't do a ribbon cutting for uh, something in the, these days in two years. Yeah, and and you know he 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 came in and did so much. He was mayor for twelve years. He 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 accomplished everything. He and his uh, uh, builder Robert Moses they accomplished everything. Built the tunnels. They built the they 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 did everything. In fact, in fact, let me see. I mean, I'm going to ask my wife to get me the book. I just I want to see if I can. Uh, uh, read some of the accomplishments. Uh, honey, this is unusual. Hey, honey, honey. Unusual radio. <laughs> hey, well, we'll take it. Uh, that's what ma- You never know what to expect on the other side of midnight. I love it. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, the, the accomplishments for the businessman did. He cleaned up, you know, the, the crime that was going on. He had a lot of calones, you know what I mean? Mm. He was, he was uh, uh, brave and 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 just uh, took on everything. Took on the gangsters. Took on took oh Tammany, on these... Tammany Hall uh, and uh, just I mean, political so corruption much, in general. So much, so much crime going on. You know, back in those days, he was mayor from nineteen thirty four to nineteen forty seven, I believe. I mean, that's been a long time since I've done the show, uh, but uh, uh, so twelve years, whatever that is. And and the, the accomplishments that he did, as I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking them up right now, if I can get to the page. But in, anyway, he, he, uh, um, he, whatever, let me see, oh, yeah. let me see, let me see. Uh, he, built, he did the PAL, the Police Athletic League. He, 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 he created that with his commissioner. Uh, I mean, you can't imagine the things that this man did. Mm. Uh uh, for the for the city, and it just goes on. It just it just goes on and on about. Uh, uh, I mean that that's what it expi- inspires me about about him. And and uh, well, I can't find it at this moment. Let me see. That's okay. We'll, we'll we'll take your word for it that he was pretty accomplished. And I, I guess that's uh, uh, that's uh, Laguardia's ghost way of telling you it's time to do another a fourth version of uh, a Laguardia stage play starring Tony Lobianco. Uh, you know, it's yeah. it, it's funny. Me, a lo- go ahead. Let me get. I got it. Let me give you these quick things that he accomplished. Just because he's, he's one of the great men. He said. He says thanks to Moses, we've given you fourteen public housing developments. 
15 outdoor swimming pools, 25 new hospitals, 95 new schools, 340 playgrounds, 360 tennis courts, redoing all of Central Park and putting in a brand new zoo, the Belt Parkway and the Marine Parkway in Brooklyn, the Bronx Whitestone Bridge, the Triborough Bridge, the Reese Park Bridge in Queens, the Queens Midtown Tunnel, the Lincoln Tunnel, the Holland Tunnel, and let's not forget the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, the East River Drive, the West Side Highway, the Henry Hudson Parkway, the Grand Central Parkway, and when all our work is finished, Driving your own car in New York City will be a pleasure. <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you, I had I had been wondering what the uh, Hugh L. Carey Tunnel was called originally. Now we know it was called the Brooklyn Battery <laughs> Tunnel. A, a lot of right. folks uh, may have seen you, Tony, as uh, Rocky Marciano. You did a, a great job a, as Marciano. Mm. What may surprise some people is that you actually have uh, you you have some history as a boxer yourself, as a Golden Gloves boxer. Did it make it easier? for you to play the role of a boxer given that you knew how to box or could you have done that just as easily if you'd never strapped on a pair of gloves no i think i i think the the experience of having having boxed as a uh, as a young man you know 16 17 years old in the golden clubs and so on and, and clubs and club fighting helped me tremendously however the most important thing is i don't know if you're left-handed or right-handed but i'm right i am left Ended. Oh. And I choose to make all my characters left-handed or right-handed. And to give you it, so Rocky, I'm playing Rocky Marciano, the heavyweight champ of the world, the undefeated heavyweight champ of the world, right-handed. And I'm, I usually box left-handed. So now think about that. And, and so switching your whole, your whole system over to the other side, uh, and be, and, and playing that that guy is a feat. And I did my own boxing. I trained with Jose Torres, the light heavyweight champ of the world. I, I boxed for, when I did all my boxing, I did 15 hours straight boxing and choreographed the fights in between rounds with, with the, with the opponent all in one night. That, that... And also, you see, and I, I do that kind of thing as the same thing I did on Yanks three, Detroit, nothing top of the seventh. When I was playing a Yankee professional baseball player, I you know, usually throw left uh, left-handed, and and but but the but as, as uh, the director said to me, you got your back to the audience, and then I said, well, I'll go to the other side of the stage. And he said, but that's the weaker side of the stage. I said, okay, so I'll pitch right-handed. So I pitched professionally as a right-handed a, a pitcher for the New York Yankees and Steve Garvey, the great first baseman for the, for the Los Angeles Dodgers, who was a friend who came to the show. He said, I never saw an actor portray a baseball player as, as a, a truthful as you have. Wow. I, when I'm doing it with the wrong hand. He almost fainted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's amazing. That's the kind of thing as those of us that just go to see shows and movies don't ever think of. Before I let you go, and again, I want to remind yeah. people they can see Tony Lobianco along with uh, the French Connection at the St. George Theater May 1st. It's at 6 p.m. Doors open at 5 p.m. Get tickets at stgeorgetheater.com. You have been very vocal in standing up for America's veterans for a long time. Uh, you have mm -hmm. uh, done a recitation of a, a beautiful 
beautiful uh, reading and a beautiful poem called Just a Common Soldier, which in just a few lines sums up the heroism that uh, soldiers face uh, that, and deal with and exemplify on a regular basis. But uh, lately, you have become an outspoken advocate of preventing and stopping veteran suicide, along with a group that's uh, very near and dear to my heart, the Gold Shield. I'm wondering yes. what prompted your uh, fondness and all the time and effort, and I'm sure money, that you spend on behalf of veterans' causes in general. How has it been going, this mission to eliminate veteran suicide? Well, why, how common sense, common sense and good upbringing makes you to understand what we, who we owe for what they, what, for what they have done and what they do for us. And you've got to give back and, and, and take care of those people that are doing that, including the police department, including our veterans. And that's just, that's just decency. And, and, and common sense. And that, in fact, of all the movies I've done, I've done 102 movies. And the most important thing is what you just mentioned, just a common soldier. I beg each and every person that's listening to watch that five-minute video. It has received 35 million views and two Emmys. And it's only five minutes. But it is it is the most one of the most touching things of all the performances and whatever I, I I'm so proud of that because it's for the cause and the gold shield is it's very important a very important uh, uh, way of, of 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 helping people helping helping these veterans uh, uh, get money to them and help them just just twenty twenty two veterans a day die take their own lives. That's impossible. That's got to be paid attention to. That's the most important people in our in our country are killing themselves. Amen. If people want to see that video, if they haven't seen Tony LoBianco do Just a Common Soldier, I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page right now. People can go to my Facebook page and see it at uh, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And if you want to learn more about the Gold Shield, it's a great way to uh, eliminate or or stop or reduce veteran suicide. And it's a great way for businesses, both large and small, to help. And it's a great way for individuals to help by patronizing businesses that help uh, that have that gold shield emblem you can learn more about it by going to the gold shield uh, dot us or the simple truth dot us mm. that's the simple truth dot us yeah. tony uh whenever we're together it just seems like the time flies by i hope we can yeah. do this again soon i appreciate you taking the time at such an odd hour absolutely my friend absolutely um, i got a movie gonna uh, gonna happen soon we'll talk about that some more with ray romano uh that's that's coming up uh and we'll 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 uh We'll talk about that. I it just been accepted in the Tri, Tribeca Film Festival. Oh, terrific! So, yeah, so we're going to see we're gonna, when, when that comes uh, out. We'll uh, we'll talk more. I'll look forward to that. It's Tony Lobianco. See him on May first. We're going to take your calls next as part of Fifteen Seconds of Fame. Be heard on any topic for fifteen seconds. One eight hundred eight four eight WABC. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77. WABC. Frank Marano. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Before we get to uh, 15 seconds of fame, I do want to recognize uh, the passing of a radio legend, especially those of us that are fond of the music of Frank Sinatra. For my entire life, so much of Frank Sinatra's songs have been presented to me by one man, and that is Sid Mark. Sid Mark, who has been in radio for 65 years, uh, hosting for a lot of that time the syndicated Sunday with Sinatra show, which is was very revolutionary. I mean, you, we have a show on our station hosted by my friend Joe Piscopo, the Ramsey Mazda Sundays with Sinatra show. It's a great show. But Sid Mark was kind of a trailblazer in that, and Joe does a great job. And I think Joe, it's funny, I'm the one that presented the idea of this show to Joe because I had worked with Joe at another station, and he, uh, we, you know, we got to be careful of how we approach Joe, and I was a little bit of the behind-the-scenes middleman at the time. And Joe, the first thing he said was, well, I know Sid Mark does that, and I don't want to step on any toes with Sid Mark. So Sid Mark, uh, an incredible career in radio for 65 years. Look, if you are working in radio, you're ahead of the game. If you're able to work in radio for years, that's if you're able to work in radio for 65 years, that's something only a handful of people in history can say. So I know I, I don't think I got to meet Sid. I think I spoke to him on the phone a few times, uh, booking him on other radio shows. But uh, I know a lot of his fans are going to miss him. I know a lot of Sinatra fans are going to miss him. And I know a lot of his uh, family and his friends are going to miss him as well. So condolences to everybody as we remember Sid Mark. All right. Your opportunity now to be heard for 15 seconds at 800-848-WABC. It's time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike in Montclair. Good morning, Frank. <clears throat> Excuse me. A suggestion for Carmine's irregular sleep patterns? A dry martini and a good book will help put him in slumberland. Not bad. Henry in Manhattan. Uh, hi, Frank. Uh, one thing that... Uh doesn't seem to have come up is uh, often uh, people are encouraged to write their senator or write the president about an issue. How about people... Mike in Staten Island. Hey, good morning, Frank. Awesome. Tony Lobianco, and especially how he's able to conform to the times by saying he has to learn how to switch his complete system to the other side. Oh, absolutely. And uh, lastly... Uh, Troy in West Babylon. Hickory Dickory Dump. Donald Trump is a big fat lump. I'm on the street to be sexy to find the guys you can help. Thank you, Troy. Everybody else uh, will have more time for this tomorrow, I hope. Um, in the meantime, stay tuned for the WABC Early News with the great Deb Valentine. Uh, you'll hear me do the business report during that hour. And then from 6 to 10, here uh, Bernie and Sid, their guest today, Judge Jeanine Pirro. Frank Morano, good day. <laughs> 